everyone, and welcome to another episode of MTG Rants. Ross, how are you doing today, buddy? I am incensed. Uh, does this have to do with Mike Conley? Yes, not yes, it does, God, Tannen. So ridiculous. Put him in the All Star game, you fucking cowards! All right, don't, don't. You're, you're, you're already yelling too loud for the mic. It's a little early in the show for that. Um, let's try to, let's try to bring it. Look, you're at like a ten. I need you at like a six and a half. No, you need to dial it back like ten percent. I'm so mad. At least you, you know why this happened, right? This happened because of horrible timing. If the All Star voting had happened six games ago. Mike Conley would have gotten in, but Before he, he, hurt. he had the hamstring injury. He's back from it now, uh, but you know, missed five games and the Suns have been surging. Like they've been playing their best basketball of the entire year with both Chris Paul and Devin Booker playing well. So, you know, Chris Paul made it in somehow Devin Booker didn't, which is also weird, but that's because they also need to just expand all-star rosters. That's sort of the, the reality of it. Uh, I think I read, uh, you know, what, all-star rosters have been 12 per conference since they were first introduced and there were like you know 60 percent of the teams right <laughs> so it just represented a significantly larger fraction of the players in the in the league um but you know they they released the the reserve picks that said anthony davis is one of the reserve picks obviously and because of his injury he's not going to be playing and because the nba is a money-grubbing piece of shit organization they're literally playing a physical all-star game in the middle of this pandemic yeah, uh, just absurd. Yeah, completely ridiculous. Um, so there needs to be an injury replacement for AD. So one more person is getting in, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be Devin Booker, and it's not going to be Mike Conley, and I'm going to be really mad. Like, even madder than I am now, but that's probably not going to happen until right before the game. They'll make that uh, the announcement. It's, and it's it's David Stern, uh, not, not David Stern, he's gone. Adam Silver is uh, the commissioner, makes the, that that call, I guess. So uh, who the fuck knows? Uh what is other variables he's going to consider, but I'm not, I'm not confident and I'm very mad because Mike Conley has been so good this year and the jazz are unbelievably good this year. And you know, he's never made an all-star team in his career. That's actually pretty surprising that he didn't make one while he was in the East. Yeah. He, well, no, well, Memphis is in the West. That was a problem. I, uh, I, I knew that as soon as I said it, I realized it was yeah. wrong. Well, they, they should be in the East, but they aren't them in Minnesota. Yeah. So when we finally do some expansion and we go to 32 teams, what they should just add two teams to the West and move those two back East. They should move New Orleans East. I don't want to be in the mm. West anymore. <laughs> yeah. But you know, Mike Conley is universally regarded as the best player to have never made an all-star team. And it's just, come on, fuck on. Does CB3 really need to make like his 15th all-star team? Their, their numbers are very similar. The Suns are approximately as good with him off the court as they are with him on the court because they actually started really slow. He and Devin Booker like didn't mesh well in the beginning part of the season. And, uh, you know, just he, he's also the fucking head of the Players Association. So I don't know what kind of how that affects anything, but it just pisses me the fuck yeah, off. Maybe he says he doesn't want to be or something. I don't know. But um, speaking of other sports news, did you see what happened in California this morning? Are you talking about Tiger? I am talking about Tiger, yeah. Yeah. So for those of you who might not have heard yet, uh, Tiger Woods is involved in a one-car accident this morning that seems to be very serious. We have almost no details on this other well, than... It was a rollover. Yeah, the car rolled over. I've seen a picture of the car. It's messed up. Uh, they had to use the jaws of life to get him out of the car, which usually means it's pretty serious or you're, you're hurt really bad or both. And they're saying right now the first report is he's still in surgery and he's having multiple leg surgeries. Now... Say whatever you want about Tiger Woods and his personal life, right? Like, obviously, not the best man when it comes to that. Um, 
you know, I, I, if you can separate the athlete from the personal person and like what he meant to the sport, he's obviously like the goat golfer of all time. Like he's just the, the greatest golfer of all time. He's the, he may be the single player to affect a sport the most in history of sports. It, it's up there. It's like up there with like probably Serena Williams and her sister and Venus uh, affecting tennis for women. Michael, I'm sure there's Michael some, Jordan Michael in terms Jordan of just basketball. impact impact on, on a sport. Yeah. Um, I think the home run race in like 96, 97 really brought back a lot of fans to baseball. And that's why I say that, that that's why a lot of people say they probably turned a blind eye to the PEDs of those days because, you know, it was right after the strike and yeah. stuff like bubble. But he's definitely up there, right? Like he's in the argument for, you know, one of the he's, he's also just one of the most dominant athletes of all time. And when you think about this, I was talking about this on my stream today. Um, I actually have a state championship in golf from when I was in high school. Uh, I think we won it my, in like 2001 or 2002, right? But I started playing golf about four or five years before that I was like self-taught, which is, you know, late 90s, right? You know, like my formative years coming out of grade school, like seventh and eighth grade. I remember getting my first like real set of clubs. His dominant master's win and his first major was 97, right? Yeah, 97, 98. So right at the same time that I'm starting to play. And I remember this. I remember a lot of people saying some very inappropriate things about a black man being very good at golf because this is predominantly a sport that was entitled white men. You know, and here you have this this black guy coming in and utterly dominating the sport. And I mean, utter like no, no, I had never seen anything like this at the level at which he was doing the, the things that were having to change. And the amount of game around him that had to raise, like the, the, the players around him had to get so much better just to compete with him. Yeah, because they basically had to change the course design so they that they could challenge thing. him. Yeah. And so then the rest of the field had to get a lot better so they could play the more challenging courses. Yeah, that, like exactly. he, he was basically Wilt Chamberlain. He was also one of the first players that I remember talking about, like, working out a lot as a golfer. You know, he's, like, in really good physical shape. Like, he would go, you know, run a bunch and then do, like, weight training before a round of golf. And then he'd be, like, in the gym after a round of golf. And, like, I remember people like John Daly on the back of the day, like, hey, we're going to go grab some beers after the round you want to go. And he's like, no, I, I got to John Daly was grabbing beers in the middle of the round. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, obviously it's a it's a it's a that's a crazy comparison because you're looking at like you know one drastic at a guy that used to when it was when they let them he would smoke yeah. during the you know these let them smoke during rounds and stuff and he'd be like doing that during rounds and Tiger's over here talk like, about an inspiration John Daly yeah there you go but you get what I'm saying and so um again like saying putting the personal stuff aside this is probably one of the most formative athletes of my life and. I don't think his life is in jeopardy. This, this isn't like a Kobe moment from la- from about, you know, we're, we're a little over a year from when, when Kobe happened, right? Yeah. This isn't, I don't think it's a, it's a threat on his life, but I have to believe that if it's serious with all the other injuries he's had to come from and uh, come back from and all the things that have gone on the last few years, then he might just be done. And his like, age. His leg is that bad. Like, I mean, yeah, he, he's he, like mid forties. Yeah. Now. He's 45 right now. And yeah. when you're 50, you start being eligible to play the champions tour. Yeah. Like, Which, I mean, he didn't even, he's like, he's, I mean, he won a major two years ago, you know, like he's still competing. It's hard for him because like he's had so many back and knee injuries and those are very important to your golf swing. Like just, just at my age and moving differently. Like I don't, I can't have the same swing I did when I was like 17, you know, my, my hips would fly off my body or whatever if I swung the same way, you know, my knee would just explode kind of thing. And it, it's kind of like, 
I love seeing people like Daniel Negreanu is a good example of this in poker too, because like he was so good and then the game drastically changed and he had to change with it to keep up. And I love seeing players that go through an era and they're super dominant and then the game changes and they have to change more, right? And you saw Tiger do that too. Like he had to, he had, he had to completely change his swing. Like if you look at him swinging in the late 90s, early 2000s, and now it's, it's night and day, it's completely different. But honestly, it's just a sad moment for like when you see it like that. It's it's hard to watch, right? Like can you think of like, you know, great athletes that didn't retire when they should have maybe and came back one more time or like they got hurt and it was like, they were just a shell of himself for the last year, and it's it's really hard to watch. Honestly, Kobe is a good example, right? He he had the the Achilles injury, and he came back and played I think two more seasons, and he was just not the same. He talked about. I remember there's an interview where he talked about what was it, what did he score like sixty something in his last game? It was sixty exactly, Tannen. Sixty. Okay, so he scored sixty in his last game. And I remember people talking about that because a lot of his kids had never seen him be like really good, you know, because they're very young. And he was like, yeah, I kind of wanted them to like see like that at one point in time, this was me. You know, I was capable of this kind of thing, you know, and I don't like seeing, you know, star athletes go out the way. Like, can you imagine if like, you know, Brady finally hits the wall next year? Like, He comes back and plays and just throws like 20 something picks, like just, you know, can't really. It's not going to happen because the dude, I'm pretty sure sold his soul to the devil. It was just the greatest player of all time. <laughs> I mean, Peyton's last year, he sucked, but his team was so good, they won the Super Bowl anyway. Do, do you know how it felt to watch Breeze play this year, it was, especially with all the injuries that he had? Like, do you hear the litany of injuries that he played through this year? Oh, it was, it was like, unreal. He had, like, seven broken ribs, like, a ruptured spleen or something like that, and, like, more, you know, and, and stuff like that. And, like, all these people were like, oh, he's, like, he's done or whatever. I'm like, the dude's literally falling apart, all right? He's spare parts right now, and <laughs> he's trying to he's trying to make it, make it happen. So it's just a sad thing to see. Um you know, hopefully we get some, some good news out of it. But if he never plays again, it's it's like, it's a really sad day, honestly. Because, like, that, that guy was so important of that part of my life for such a long time. How far... Okay. It's not, it's not perfectly set up. I, I was wondering how far Tiger was behind Nicholas. But, and I knew he was close, but he's three behind. And I was going to say... We're like, you know, for all the doom and gloom that is going on over Tiger and his future as a golfer, the we could be setting ourselves up for like one of the greatest sports stories ever, because I know Nicholas famously won the Masters at 46 in 1986, the oldest ever to win a golf major um, to this day, I think by a pretty considerable margin. You know, a lot of for most uh, sports, you think of 30 as the, the age where you start declining. And in golf, it's more 40. Right. Um, and so 46 is like, you know, way up there. And he he won that one. And it was, you know, an incredible weekend. But, you know, Tiger's 45 now. He turns 46 later this year. And then, you know, he could be, you know, potentially back for the Masters next year. And win that at 46, but he also he wouldn't tie Nicholas in doing so. He would still be a couple behind. But a, a win like that would be a fuck Jack Nicholas. By the way, what's wrong? I don't know anything about Jack Nicholas other than he designs golf courses. Google it sometime. We're not going to talk about the show. He's just a giant pos. But uh, I not was like surprised. hoping Tiger would just destroy. I, I was hoping Tiger would like destroy his records or whatever. But we get you know we can we can move on her. But like at 46, like you say, coming back from these injuries and. I got to believe that the skill gap was different then than it is now. Like Nicholas was so much better than most of the people playing those days that even at 46, he could still win. I don't know if like the competition is bad enough for Tiger to win anymore. If that's, if that's the right way to say it, we'll have to see, 
you know, because, like, you know, people were good back then for, like, what was going on, but, like, we understand stuff so much more now. The equipment is so good, and people are starting to figure things out and play differently now that, like, I don't know if he can survive another major injury. So we'll have to see. Uh, one more sports thing before we leave. I know you actually wanted to ask me a question or two about this, but the longest contract in history got signed uh, last week, and that was by a very, very young baseball player, and one that we, uh, we've mentioned on the show before. In uh, Fernando Tatis Jr., uh, we mentioned him because of the, you know, he got in trouble for swinging at a three and zero pitch in a game, and you know it's one of the things that I hate in baseball and stuff now. But uh, he got a fourteen year, three hundred and forty million dollar contract. Fourteen years, Ross. Yeah, most people and, don't even play close to that long. Well, the thing that gets me is like every sport, the contracts are getting shorter. You know, you used to see 10 years ago, 15 years ago, people signing five, six, seven-year deals in baseball, eight, nine, ten-year deals. And it, it sort of felt like the Pujols contract was the the beginning of the end for it in baseball. It was like that one. In the Miguel Cabrera got a, an extension that I'm, I still remember when it happened, he was still really good. And I was just like, why? Like, this is so bad. And it was just horrible. Like, those are two yeah, of the worst he, contracts I've ever seen. He, he was washed like two or three years later. Yeah, I mean, you, like, you, it. like it, it's yeah, it's like he's he's one he's one hamburger away from like not being able to play anymore. You know, that, that's really yeah. Mean. He's like one like like injury away from like he was already getting to the point where like his mobility was getting you know really bad. He was having yeah, a DH couldn't play in the field. Kid. Same thing with, with Pools. He had a foot injury and he's like hasn't been the same since. He just like cannot run, so he he can't play the field. He can barely run the bases. Yeah, he, he actually just announced this is his final year too. He's done after the season, which it's the last year of his contract, right? Uh, I think he has a couple more. I think he has this one in next year or something like that. But I think he might be no because he's they be they won in in sure. they won in twenty eleven and then he signed the ten year deal. This is okay, this, so maybe, pretty sure this is the last year. year. Maybe it is. I, I I don't know for sure, but it's kind of weird. Um, to answer your earlier thing, yeah, I do think baseball is moving away from the giving away the giant contracts, and you do see this every now and then, right? But you're seeing it more with just the young players, right? The truly elite of elite. You're not just seeing the good players anymore get like eight years, two hundred million. You're seeing like, you know, Fernando Tatis Jr., who's this young, get this kind of yeah, deal. No, none of these you know? Jason Worth, Carl Crawford contracts. Right. You're you're just not going to get that anymore because there's not a, there's not excess value in this. Now there's some value in this on both sides, and there's some missing for both sides. Fourteen years is a lot. That is a very very it's, big it's thing for San Diego. Yeah, because here, here's is the, the thing: is it the longest contract ever signed in the history of professional sports? Yes. 13 was, I think 13 was the record before that, which is Trout or whatever and some other people. But um, so here's a few things. Baseball contracts, as long as the player doesn't do something utterly ridiculous, they're guaranteed. San Diego will pay this cut. It's not like football. It's not like basketball where they can get out of this in some way, shape, or form. Basketball, like they're mo- usually mostly guaranteed, sometimes not. But if you're, if it's a contract of that amount, of that amount, uh, it'll generally be always guaranteed. Sometimes the last year is partially guaranteed or unguaranteed. Sometimes the last year is an option, whether team option or player option, but for the most part, guaranteed. But all he has to do is try to play every year. Like, let's say he gets a, a pretty serious injury and, like, can't be a major league player anymore. As long as he can, like, walk, show up to spring training or whatever, and, like, attempt to play, they're still on the hook. I mean, insurance will get involved. I'm sure they took a massive amount of insurance out on this. And that's what usually happens, but they'll take care of that. But here's the other part that's big in this. And like, I know you said that like, 
you know, this is a big number, 340 million for 14 years. If, if he plays in his elite for like eight or nine years of this, it's a great deal for both teams, right? Here's the big deal. And the reason why he signs it now is Tatis doesn't make any money comparative to like any other player in baseball, especially like the superstar that he looks like he's going to be. You know, because he's barely he's barely played like 150 games in his in his career. For for people that don't you know follow sports that often, the key to understand here is that the players' association for any professional sport is generally looking out for like mid tier veteran players, uh, because usually the owners, uh, especially in team sports, are looking to spend most of their money on the high end star talent and the young potential talent that they're going to try to lock in early and then have them become a star while they're, while they're still under a low contract and then they become really underpaid. So usually in, in negotiations for uh, agreements between the Players Association and the league, there is some amount of jockeying for you know structuring contracts in a way that favors that mid-tier player more than they might be um so but still like the the so you know when you usually there's like rookie scale contracts based on where you're drafted uh you know you get a certain amount of contracts or you're you have to negotiate within a certain range um and then either you know salary caps or other other rules prevent you know really huge contracts although i don't think baseball has as much of that um but regardless, like, you know, when you're young, even if you're really good, you're usually not getting paid nearly as much a, a, as you might think they are. Though, once you're a professional, you can market yourself. And so it's it's almost at its worst in baseball because uh, so like for the first few years, they're getting like league minimum, which is still a very large amount of money. Let's be real. But comparatively, like if you compare him to other players of his stature, they're making 10 to 20 to 30 million dollars a year. And he's making like 600,000. So we're talking about literal pennies on the dollar comparatively, right? And they get that for like at least another season of him making practically the minimum. And then he gets what's called super two status because he's been like such a good player for the first two years of his career. He gets bumped up a little bit more than the average player when he moves into what's called arbitration. Because San Diego just like owns his rights. Like he can't, he can't go anywhere. He can't sign a contract. They self control of him for like about another four years. And they could have kept him at a pretty small amount. Here's the thing. If they kept him at the small amount, by the end of arbitration, he probably would have shattered the record for like highest money made down the line, like biggest jumps, because he's so ridiculously good that he would have had to make a lot. But they would have kept them at such a small number that they would have saved a ton of money. So there's a lot of people talking about like they're giving up a lot of excess value here up front, but they're going to gain excess value on the end if Tatis is just good for most of this contract. Because let's be real, in year 14, if he's still a stud major leaguer, then he's just one of the greatest players of all time. Like we're talking top 10, right? With yeah. that kind of career. Like he's probably not going to be because he's a shortstop. He probably won't stay there, right? You know, like physically, you just the demandingness of the sport and that position, he probably won't be there his whole career. He might yeah, he'll probably move to a corner outfield or second base, something, whatever, you know, figured out, figured out. But like the interesting thing is, yeah. And so like from the, from the team perspective, you're like, we're giving up a lot of money up front. But we might be saving some in the back end where, like, we had to re-sign this guy. There's inflation. You know, the, like, we might have had to sign him. Like, let's say let's say he's elite for the next three or four years and gets on the free agent market at, I think he's 22. He's either 21 or 22. So he'd be, like, 25, 26. He would have shattered the record for for, for, uh, for a contract. He'd have probably gotten, like, $450 million. I don't know what the inflation is going to look like in four or five years. So he might have gotten $500 million. Who knows? Like, we're talking an absurd amount, right? But you think, well, then – so conversely what's good for each other is bad for the other because here's the thing tatis is securing his financial freedom 
by giving up, you know, some some possibility on the back end to age ensure this amount of money now, right? And to like, you know, he's he's guaranteed to get 340, but to actually make real money like this minute. So like this year coming up, he's gonna make, you know, whatever is his I, I don't know what, how the contract's loaded, if it's front loaded, back loaded, or if it's just even the whole way through, but instead of making you know, six hundred thousand, seven hundred thousand this year. He's probably going to make like fifteen million. Yeah, and like you know, if he's a, if he you know pretty easily saves you know, well, I, I don't know, like he's got to pay a ton of taxes and everything on that or whatever. But you know, you just think about like you know in, investing a, a large chunk of that money with any you know reasonable return. You're you're going to make up a significant portion of what you give up on the back end that way, and you're also guarding against you know the absolute worst case scenario where you suffer some catastrophic injury and you know you know your career is over. Um, so he you know there, there's be- there's benefits to both sides here. It still seems it just seems ridiculous to me that a, t- a team would like tie themselves up like that, but you know with a guy this young and this good, it it makes some sense. I think not only is he going to be the face of the franchise, he's going to be the face of the sport very much. Like, the, you know, he's like the youngest of the of the youth movement that's going on right now. You think of him, like Juan Soto, Ronald Acuna Jr., like all these superstars that are like 22 and younger, which most people don't even make it to the majors at that age. If you make it to the majors at that age, like you're just a stud, like an actual stud. So like these these guys are just unreal. This so, is, is Have they gone under like new ownership recently or has the ownership just decided to start trying? No, so this, it's funny. This happened like five or six years ago. Um, it's funny because it, I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. Um, about five or six years ago, San Diego was like, uh, the, you know, the, the fans were kind of tired of them sucking. And like they had like a decent season and some decent players. And I think they I think they have the same GM right now. I can't remember exactly, but they said, fuck it. We're going for it. Right. And they made like a bunch of huge trades for huge name players, made a couple signings. And people were like, Oh, San Diego this year, they're like the sexy team, the sexy pick or whatever, blah, blah, blah. We actually got to take advantage of it. I don't mean it in a bad way. It's just like the Atlanta Braves, we got to trade them some of our talent for a bunch of their young talent because what they did is they, they leveraged a lot of their future to make their team good now, which is, you know, what teams do, right? You know, you trade first round picks or you trade good prospects. It ended up working out very badly for them. And I mean, very badly. Like they were better, almost not, they were not much of a better team the next year. They end up having to dump a bunch of their players to recoup some value kind of stuff, blah, 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 you know. And yeah, they're kind of doing it again this year, but I think their core is better this year. The players that they're acquiring from these other teams are just better, better players with like higher upside and, and, and uh, so higher the, floors. They signed Machado, right? They signed Machado last year. Yeah. So they have two players on their team making $300 million. Who are very young and very good. Yeah. And uh, they they traded for uh, the pitcher who ran, who was the runner-up for the Cy Young last year. They traded for another pitcher who won a Cy Young uh, two years ago or three years ago as well. Like, they're, they're the uh, – right now when you do betting odds, I think they have the second highest chances of winning the World Series behind the actual Dodgers, who are just absurd. But, but my thing is more like – for a while, San Diego, at least in my view, was one of those teams that if they got a good prospect, eventually that guy was going to get traded to one of the major markets and they were never going to ever be like that good. You know, Adrian Gonzalez ended up going to Boston. Um, you know, I'm sure there's some other examples I'm, I'm forgetting. Um, Anthony and, Rizzo with the Cubs. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. 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 Rizzo. The, yeah. So, um, uh, you know, for as a as a fan base, it becomes like. You know, pretty hard to really commit 
unless you're already a diehard. And now it feels like they're giving fans a reason to commit. They're going to sell a million exactly. Tatis jerseys. Exactly. They're they're going to make a lot back on this. I think this is this is seeing this. It's it's. I think I talked about it at the time. It was the opposite for when Florida signed the Marlon signed uh, Giancarlo to that 13 year deal. And people were like, "Oh, they're finally doing this." I'm like, "He's not going to be on this team in two years." I just knew it. Like there's like there's no way with the way they they run their team. I don't think this is the same thing with Tatis. I think he'll 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 be there to stay unless something really like they get really really bad in like four years and they're like, "Hey, they'll probably come to him and be like, would you want to go somewhere else?'" Like, you know, it's like for the betterment of our team, you know, we can maybe be good in yeah. a few years, et cetera, et cetera. Basically what Seattle should have done with Felix. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they should have, yeah. I mean, that was hard to watch, dude. His last game, and he's like crying on the mound and stuff. Like, you see these players give their all to a team for 15 years, whatever, blah, blah, blah. All right, let's uh, let's stop talking about sports. Let's move on to Matthew. <laughs> sports are getting too while. sad now. It, well, that and like, just don't get me started talking about baseball, man. I'll, I'll go, I'll do the whole damn show on baseball. So like, let's, uh, cause it's, you know, baseball starting up. I'm ready. Pitching catchers are, are reported around. There's games in a couple days. Okay. For, for spring training well, games. I'll, I'll get you started talking about something else then, because you participated in the first ever sealed deck arena open last weekend. Uh, you know, I know you've been enjoying this limited format quite a bit. Oh yeah. You made a, you made a good run at it. <laughs> And by that, I mean, yes, you had the best possible record without winning any money. (laughs) Yep. Nice job. Actual best record possible, too, because I 7 0 to day one and then 5 2 to day two. 7 0 to your first bullet, right? Yeah. First bullet, 7 0, done. I was, it it felt weird, right? Because, like, I had bought into, like, mentally, I had bought into um, playing this tournament, and I was like, how many bullets would I fire? And I was like, I'd probably fire at least three. You know, like, let's be real. If I'm going to do this, I'm probably firing at least three, and then, like, you know me. If I do the third and it's like not that late, I'm firing the fourth. It's the same. <laughs> if I fire that fourth and I get really close, I'm like, yo, I'm firing the fifth. Let's go. You know? Yeah. Like, if like the like, first one you go like one two or, or one three or whatever, yeah, it's like quick out, and then you got like you know two that are really close. Yeah, you'll fire the fourth. Because it's what twenty five dollars a pop, and like let's let's put it let's let's be real. I haven't played a tournament in a long time. What's another you know hundred something dollars to me when I'm like. And my first, my first shot was free. I had a bunch of stuff like, you know, gold and gym set up. So I, I did this all completely free or whatever. So it's an arena tournament, Michael. It. How much could it cost? A hundred dollars? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I was, I, I was looking and I was really looking forward to it too. So that's like, a, that's a big deal about how many, how many shots I'm going to fire. Right. You know, it's like, it's the first ever, it's the first ever sealed one. It's my first one ever. So I was super excited to play it. This format, if you haven't played any sealed or draft in this format, I'm sure you've maybe heard someone else talking about it or watched my streams, it is amazing. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you can play practically everything. Um, it's it's really cool. There's a lot of cool things to do. And I, I was just, like, really excited to play a high-level limited tournament because, Roth, I actually can't tell you the last time I did that. Like, I can't tell you the last time I went to, like, a limited Grand Prix. It's been it's, – it's got to be at least three or four years since I played a high-stakes uh, limited event. I'm trying to think the last time I I played it, and it has to have been the the Mythic Championship in London. So that was uh, that was the weekend that Corey told me he was moving here to Roanoke. So that would have been almost two years ago now, two years from this April. So my last pro tour was PT25, where we didn't play limited. Um, I know that I played in I played in Grand Prix Atlanta, the one before the Legacy one, which was Triple Kaladesh. And that might have been my last big level. I I uh, played that limited. one too. Yeah, and actually, that might have been my last limited Grand Prix. I I eleven uh, four. Same. I I six three to the mediocre sealed pool and then five one limited. 
or five one draft. I don't I mean. remember what my day two record was, but I was the only person in my car to make day two. So when I got out of top eight contention, I think I just like yellowed and tried to you know go crazy or whatever. But I remember because um I got on stream not for playing a match. They they recorded me building my sealed pool. I remember that uh, that tournament because I had been doing the Hearthstone stuff, right? This was like my first tournament back, and. I remember I showed up to day one and I showed up like bright and early. Had a co- I still remember this. I had a coffee cup in my hand. I was like walking through the, the auditorium, right? And Marshall Sutcliffe walks up and he's like, hey, man, it's like good to see you again. You know, like, you know, I haven't seen you in a while. All these tournaments, like you've been doing the Hearthstone thing. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, why are you here so early? Because I was there at like you know, 8.45 in the morning or 9 in the morning, you know? And I was like, man, I've got to play round one. And he's like, what? I'm like, I have zero buys. Like I haven't played a Magic tournament in like, you know, two and a half years or something like that. And he's like, come here. And I'm like, what? And he made me sign some waivers. He's like, we needed something to, for, um, they needed something to play in between, like in between all the, uh, like the, for the dead air, you know, in between all, all the, uh, the rounds. And so they filmed me building my seal deck and I got to have Frank Karsten and someone else. I can't remember else, but it might've been another hall of famer, uh, talking about building seals while I was doing it. So I was like, I didn't know at the time, but I would have been nervous, you know, cause it's like two of the best limited players of all time doing that. I opened a Yu-Gi-Oh card on stream LOL, like I meant, uh, I opened a, what were they called in Kaladesh? An invention? I think it's what they were called. So I opened an invention, you know, one of the special looking, crazy looking cards. So I got to kind of, I got to kind of, you know, build with that. And that was like really cool. I had to like call a judge over. It was like, hey, is this even a thing? You know, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I played in the arena open this weekend. Was super looking forward to it. Was ready to fire multiple bullets. And I'll tell you this. I, uh, I opened, I opened my sealed pool. You know, it shows you your rares at first. I was very happy with the, the rares that it showed me. I'd have to pull it up to see exactly or whatever, but I was very happy with the rares that I saw. And I was like, man, I hope I can play these colors. And then I opened my pool and saw the dual lands and like the mana fixing that I had because there's two ways to build seals in this pool. In, in this thing is you either make your deck as quick as possible because I was doing best of one. You make your deck as quick as possible to take advantage of trying to win as quickly as possible. Or greed is good is the way we were talking about this. You need to like just play all your rares. If they're good, just play them. Like, just play all your colors. And so I ended up playing four colors. I had two Wrath effects in my deck, which were just absurd, obviously. I had both the black ones, which is um, Blood on the Snow. And what's the one where you name a creature type? Witch's Vengeance. It's the it's the new Witch's Vengeance. It's a different one. It's um, oh. it's, it's like the opposite. It's like the inverse. It's like yeah. you name one and all, everything of that's not Yeah, that. yeah, you're right. Whatever you're right. it's called. So I had both of those. They were blowouts all day long. My deck was very good. I yep. want to say... Blood on the Snow sounds like it's fucked up. It's very, very, very good. Because you get a creature back, like, most yeah, of the time. Yeah, yeah, you're just so far ahead every time. and Yeah, like, like one play, I remember someone, um, they had a bunch of creatures in play, and then they um, they played the Red-White Saga. Uh, Showdown. Showdown of the Skulls. Yeah. And so I untapped and was like, this is going to be fun, because they had a bunch of creatures to play, and they were about to girl all of them. I was like, Blood on the Snow to kill all your creatures. And then the creature that I brought back of Blood on the Snow was Masked Vandal. Which kills an an, uh, an enchantment. It comes to place. So I killed their their showdown. So I was like, good luck. Like I just like seven for one you, or whatever you know. So like, cool stuff going on there. Um, it was fun to play. You know, high stakes limited. It was it was weird that it was over so fast. You know, because I said that I mentally was prepared to like fire you know multiple bullets, and I just seven I seven owed like very quickly in you know um, you know best of one. I had some really close games. Don't get me wrong. I had some games where I had to make some really. Were you decisions. streaming this at all? So. <laughs> I got asked that a lot to stream it. I didn't just because a, it was like my first like real event that I've played in what, probably over a year, maybe, maybe a year probably and a half. More. Cause I'm trying to think <laughs> yeah. of 
Yeah, it's been a long time. B, I play really badly on stream. I mean, I play pretty badly overall, but I play really badly. On stream. Everyone plays badly on stream. Yeah. Like, you know, because there's so much going on. I'm talking a lot. So when I was playing this, I had the dual monitor set up like most streamers do. I had nothing on my other screen. Literally had like a screensaver up or whatever. I was like trying to focus on everything that I was doing. Um, you, I know you're a fan of this. I didn't do this as much in best of one, but I did it in the best of best of three on day two. I, I'm about to show Ross an envelope. It's on the side of my desk. I used this as paper. I would write down whatever round I'm in, and then I would write down any cards that matter for my opponent. So any tricks they could have, all of their um, foretell cards. Uh, any I I played uh, Disdainful Stroke in both of my decks because I think Disdainful Stroke is like one of the most underrated cards in this format. So I'd write down all their targets for Disdainful Stroke so I knew like which ones to kind of like be thinking about and stuff. You know, oh, I could probably let this one resolve because I need to worry about this card kind of thing. You know, so just little things like that. So like all their tricks, all the things that mattered. If they had a big card, then hey, I might need to kill them before they've got this kind of thing going. So, um, or if, you know, they had a bunch of enchantments and artifacts, I'd write that down too. So I know I can bring in my disenchant effect or whatever for the game. So it felt good to compete at that level. It felt really bad to go 12 and two at what is supposed to be like a high level event and pretty much get patted on the back and be handed Monopoly money and told good job. Yeah. So what, we're done. you when did you take your first loss on day two? I was either I think I was I think I went three zero, lost, two zero, and then lost. Um, I played, I think if I remember right, I think I played at least three big name players on day two. I can't remember like everything exactly. I know I beat Mark Herbalholtz, who should be a Hall of Famer, and then I, I the my loss to get eliminated from the tournament was from Tom Martell in a very very close game where I died to what had to be a, I think it had to be a top deck Warren clicks. I'm not hundred percent on that. And it was just like too much for me to handle. And I had a disdainful stroke in my hand, but I had to like, I had to activate a path to the world tree the turn before. So I had to like tap out because like I needed the the whole swing of that. Talk about getting greedy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like the thing is like, if I didn't do that, I was going to die the turn before. And then this gave me, Oh, uh, I just meant you know, being five colors. So you could activate path oh. to the world tree. Well, the thing is, is like most of the time it's free, right? You could play three or four colors and then you just have, uh, there's multiple cards that have just produced, like I had a way to produce treasure. I had like the, the green enchantment, uh, the frost enchantment that like makes something a snow land and then it taps for an extra color and it's of any color. Uh, a lot of times you have like replicating ring in your deck or you have Svella. A lot of five color fixers, Ra- there's, rainbow there's fixers. Yeah, there's infinite. Or like you can just play one of your off color duels. You know, if I'm playing like, if I'm playing Sultai splashing red, like that, that's the main way to build is like you play green blue and it has like a little bit of black and red for like removal or like you know bomb and then white's the worst color and sealed in my opinion so like if you have like a green white dual land or a blue white dual land or a black white dual land it's, it's just a freebie right it's better than a swamp right it's better than an island most of the time i don't know tannin playing base simic decks that splash for removal spells that doesn't seem like a winning strategy that's actually what I lost to. I lost to just a really good Simic deck from from Tom Martell. Like every card he played was way above average. You know what I mean? It's just like I was like, man, your 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 pool is very very good. You know? Yeah. When you're like 18th like, card is as good as everybody else's eighth card. Yeah. Because uh, I mean, like the best the be- green is the best color like by far. I almost every seven win deck I saw was either like some real fucked up aggro deck. You know where they're like the red white deck is really good, or they just had green something. So Ruli's Pac-Mate, I assume, is the best common. It is the best common. And I think it's not close. There's a bunch yeah. of other commons I think that are very close that are good. <laughs> like, like, uh, like the Demon Bolt is very good. I like Demon Bolt a lot. There's like another removal spell or two that's good. In sealed, I think uh, Feed the Serpent is up there, but not in draft. It's weird. I know. And R- then, removal uh, gets overrated in draft because decks are curving out a lot. And 
Exactly. Also, black is the worst color in draft, I think, by a significant margin. And then in sealed, it gets a little bit better because field the speed serpent exiles and it just kills everything in the format. So yeah, like, that versatility of removal is so much more important in sealed than it is yeah, in draft because draft is so much more focused. Yeah. Yeah, everyone has a bomb. In draft, they don't always have a bomb. And then um, I actually think it's like it's called like Shimmerland Veil or whatever, the come into play tapped snowland that you can just name a color. When it comes into play, it taps for that color. I actually think that's one of the best commons in the set, believe it or not. I, just, I think that card's busted. And it, it It's so good in, like, the decks that I really, really like to draft. Plus, like, like you talk about the World Tree card, the Path to World Tree. I usually have a Veil in my deck, which, like, fixes all my mana. And then, like, late game, I can be like, oh, well, I can just name the color I don't have in my deck. You know, like, white yeah. or whatever. So it fixes everything. Um, it was a weird feeling when the tournament was over. I, I kind of missed it, and I kind of didn't miss that feeling. You know exactly what I'm talking about. The tournament. Yeah, where... I mean, you you got the full roller coaster, which is the exact thing you don't miss from playing tournament magic. But you know, you missed all the other stuff around it. I'm sure you would have felt awesome if you had just gotten one more win. You know, that one day yeah. would have felt great. Uh, oh yeah, but, absolutely. And honestly, even even like you know you know firing two bullets getting there in a close match to like squeak into day two and then making a reasonable run and falling short probably wouldn't have felt as bad as the 12-2 get no money because 12 yeah, i mean 12-2 in a high level event is an awesome record that's a top eight record uh you know i you know it's it's one win away from top eight in a grand prix and that's not counting for buys it, and now with year. with you mean before the pandemic, like Grand Prix were getting small enough that X2 was probably a lock. You just drew the last yeah. round. I made that joke to somebody too. I was like, this is the same record I top eight at a Grand Prix with. Yeah. Like, I, I had this record at a Grand Prix and top eight at a Grand Prix with this. And then, you know, if you're 12 2 at, at, at an open, yeah. you're you're probably, probably drawing in the, into the top eight uh, or, you know, playing out the last round for seeding or whatever as a lock. So, yeah, uh, I I can see the frustration there. And yeah, and like I will say this, I did get like the full full effect of it too. Um, I was chatting with like one or two other people, like it was you know Mike Sigaris, Jarvis, you, and a couple other people who were a are very good at sealed, so I could like throw a question to him, like, hey, would you play this over this, or like, you know, what like would you play five forest here or four forest here, like questions like that, but also like, hey, how'd you do? Like, what's your record? Like, you know, the feeling like in between rounds thing, because yeah. it goes by so fast, you don't get that, you don't get the the because like Magic tournaments, I mean, we're playing as much as we're not playing a lot of the times. Probably you know, less. You have like, yeah, you have like a lot of time in between rounds, right? It's like hang out with your friends and talk about how they're doing and stuff. And like, you know, Play I missed, some love letter. Yeah, I miss walking up to somebody and be like, "Hey, man, how's it going?" And then they tell me the record. And I'm like, "No, no, no, how's it going? Like, how's your life? I don't give a shit about how you're doing at the tournament. Like, I do, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah, you know, tell me how your life's going. Like, how's your, how's your girlfriend? How's your boyfriend? How's your wife? You know, like, how's your kids? How's your dog? That's what I really like. Give me your goddamn dog pictures. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> give me your dog pictures, you cowards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want all of them. What's the saying? I never don't want to see your dog. Or whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know? There's never a bad time for you to send like, me pictures of your two, dog. There's two absolutes in my life, Ross. I never don't want to play with your dog or see your dog or whatever, blah, blah, blah. I never don't want tacos. Okay, those are two absolutes in my life. Yeah, I could go for some tacos. Yeah, I'm, I'm making some tacos after this. I'm making some, like, tuna tacos. It's going to be amazing. Jealous. I'm going to make tuna tuna tacos, and we have some leftover bulgogi, so I'm going to have some of that, too. Are you going to put them both food. in the same taco? Probably that, not. That, but yeah, that might get a little weird. Because I like to use, um, I use a sriracha mayo with the tuna and some other stuff. So like, I don't okay. think that would go well with the other thing. But you got any sort of a, a slaw or like a mango salsa going on going on uh, in there? I, I you need some acid. The, you need some acid on those store. tacos. Yeah, you're 100. I went to the grocery store yesterday and for I meant to get something and I forgot 
or whatever. So uh, that's the worst. Pretty that's the worst feeling. Well, they're gonna be pretty plain. But here's the thing: I'm gonna work out when I'm done with this, and when I'm done working out, I don't give a shit as long as the food tastes okay. Most of the time, what's on it, I'm just gonna scarf it down in like ten. I'm one of those people <laughs> I eat real. You've seen me eat. I eat real fast, and I'm gonna like shovel the stuff down my. I eat very slowly relative to yeah. everyone around me, and I like I when I was a kid, I used to eat really fast, and now I yeah. I don't know. We're like. If other people sped up their eating and I stayed the same, or if I slowed down, I have the same feeling about handwriting, by the way. I think you just learn to enjoy your food more, especially now that, like, you understand what you like more, you're branching out more, you understand your palate better. I I also talk at the table a lot. Yeah, as well say, that's part of it. You're experiencing your food, which is, I think, a big deal. Because, like, it's one of the the great, this is such a tangent on the show, but it's one of the great, like, what's the word I'm looking for here? One of the really good you know, experiences in life. That simple you get pleasures. The, yeah, simple pleasures because, like, we need food to survive, right? And we could just get to the point where, like, you, you break it down into brass tacks where, like, you're just eating a protein, a vegetable, and a fruit at all times. You don't care how it how it tastes or whatever. And you get a, you get you get some protein, some carbs, and some uh, of the other stuff, and you're like, all right, I'm fine. That's enough to sustain me. But then, like, you got the other end of the people that are, like, foodies who are just, like, wanting to constantly challenge their palate and stuff, and I love it. It's funny that you brought up, like, whether you've sped up or slowed down i know the moment at which i started eating too fast because i was already probably <laughs> a fast eater but it was when i started getting really serious about uh playing poker and i would put in really long sessions and you would i didn't want to leave the table ever so i would order food they bring it to the table and you eat it on the side and i would just like eat it in between hands and i'm a pretty active player i play like a lot of hands per rotation so like i don't have a lot of time to eat so i would just start shoveling you know when i got when, when i'm out of a hand these are ordering specific foods that are easier to eat quickly like give me the quesadilla no pasta nothing i need a fork for no 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 no. nothing with your hands i I, if i see somebody eating with their hands at the table and playing i get mad i would always eat something with a fork or uh a lot of my go-to is chinese food because it's it's pretty quick it doesn't sit super heavy on you and chopsticks are amazing like for you know eating utensil keeping your hands clean i am not good at eating with chopsticks uh i'm probably like average at best I, not, I can amazing. pick up, like, you know, pretty well, big things, like, a you know, uh, a slice yeah. of a sushi roll or something. Yeah. Uh, like, but, I can eat rice with it. Is that, like, where you, you say someone is, is good? Yeah. I'm, I'm very bad rice. at eating rice with it or, like, eating eating noodles with chopsticks. Though, like, when you eat noodles with chopsticks, you basically just shovel the noodles into your mouth. Yeah, you're, you're, you're picking up, like, uh, like 1% of the noodle and, like, putting it into your mouth. Yeah. I, I, I like eating pasta with chopsticks i think we talked about this on the show before like panay with with chopsticks is actually fun and cool it's a different way to do it and stuff so um, maybe i, I anyway, should just buy a pair of chopsticks so i can practice we are the we are just like mcg ranting a lot in this episode <laughs> i will say this one more one more thing before we we move on um i would like to see I, I, look here's the thing i'm one of those people and i'll i'll i'm guilty of this a lot but um you know i hear people a lot when they say when you say something like you want to change or like someone's joking about this on Twitter with you when you're talking about you want Mike Conley in the All-Star game, it's like you're not allowed to just say, I want Mike Conley in the All-Star game. Tell me who you take out because like give give me the, you know, the back and forth here. And so when I say something like I wish there was a change to this thing for the people who went five and two and it's not just like here's the thing. I got like what is it? 20K gems. It's $100 worth of gems, right? Which I put no money into this. I got 20K gems. That's going to last me quite a while. Right, like quite a while of not having to buy gems. I'm going to get to kind of free roll a bunch of limited events, especially now that I have almost the entire set built, and I really should just craft the rest of it so I can just get free gems every time I open a pack or whatever. Now, but just like throw me a bone here, like since because 
you know, the, the person who finishes at the bubble of the World Series every year, like the person who goes out right before the money, like the biggest event of the year, you know, they, they usually give him a free, they usually give them a free buy-in for the event next year. And like, I know it's a lot of people went five and two, right? But like, you know, maybe give me something extra there or like give me something extra for seven owing day one. You know what I mean? Because like now you just invalidated the fact that I had the best possible record on day one. Is, is there no is there no prize for day one records? You get some gems for your records, period. It doesn't matter yeah. how many losses you have. It's how many wins you have. So okay. like, I got the same amount of prize as everyone else who made day two for day one. Did yeah, you I'm saying there? I, I wouldn't I I would be supportive of having a structure where going seven oh on day one gets you more gems than going, you know, seven one or seven two. Just something, just give me something extra because it's like you said, I went 12 and two at an event that's like, you know, everyone's like, you know, playing a high stakes, high level, uh, limited event because honestly, like, yeah, it's not a Grand Prix, right? Like it's not a, it's not a, uh, it's not a pro tour, but $2,000 for playing in one event of magic is a lot. That's a lot more than I've got in almost any event that I've played in cash in. That would be one of my bigger caches because like most of my caches at SCG were a little bit less than that or right around then. And then most of my, like, I got third at a Grand Prix, got less than this, but this is back in the day when the, the payouts were shit and, like, really bad. Or maybe I got right at this amount, you know? And it's, like, really stupid because I'm just, like, $2,000 for management, that's actually a lot of money. Like, you're playing at a really high-stakes event, and, like, you remember when they had to change that rule and Grand Prix got really big that, like, all the X2s queued for the next Pro Tour? Because it yeah. was just, like, we, you know, X2 used to be a lock for top eight. Now you, like, might make top 32 <laughs> at X2. You know, you might not even top 16. You might top 32, and so, like, they're like, all right, so we just did it by record. And so, I mean, it's early, right? Obviously, I'm more into it now that it affected me personally. You know, I'm like, hey, I went, you know, you know, 7-0-5-2, and, like, this sucks. But, like, you know, I'm all for, like, you know, bettering. And, like I said, I don't have a perfect fix for it. Maybe give me, like, free entry into another one of these damn things or something. I don't know. They don't do them that often. I'll tell you this. I would play one of these every weekend if they yeah. had it. it. It does bring up the, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, the and I've said it, too, that the that the, the the arena itself is pretty exploitive exploitative you know, yeah i'm sorry exploitative it's really not great the, the the financial model with this and if they had these really often i think some people would get themselves in trouble like firing off too many times and like real you know before they realize like oh this is my fifth bullet i've spent like 150 bucks and didn't realize it kind of thing the whole idea of arena being this thing that you have to sink money into that you literally cannot get possibly nothing. get out yep is ridiculous yeah, the, the fact that there is... Okay, so I will say this. If, if you wanted to play Magic and you wanted to like try to break even, which is like a, an absurd goal in the game because you're, you're in a hole when you play this game almost always. Like you and I are the exception, not the rule, where we've like made money in, in the long run for yeah. Magic, right? Like we're ahead, right? It, it, if you're going to try to do that and play Digital Magic, you have to play Magic Online. You have to do it. And I'm going to tell you this. The competition on there is really freaking stiff. Real like the the average player on Magic Online is leaps and bounds past the average player in Arena. I'm not saying anything bad about Arena or anything like that, but it's just when you have a bigger barrier for entry, which is like you know the 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 the, the money amount going in is a little bit higher, and you physically have to have the cards on there. They're like there's the secondary market stuff. The barrier for entry is more, and yeah, you're gonna have dead money. You're gonna have fish in there, like whatever you want to say, or whatever, blah blah blah. But when you have better stakes like that and better rewards, it attracts the better players. And you're going to play against them in general. I'll tell you this. If I took like my overall draft records and played on both of them, I would expect my, my Magic Online record to be worse. 
Yeah, I, I agree that the moto field is probably harder than the arena field, but I think that's more of a function of the entrenched players largely already being invested in MTGO. And, you know, maybe some of them migrated over to Arena because they're playing Standard. Maybe they just focus, you know, but those that don't play a ton of Standard and focus more on Modern, Legacy, Vintage, uh, Pioneer, you know, don't really have to. And now all the new players are being funneled into Arena as opposed to being funneled into MTGO. So you have it coming from both ends where one client is already the place where the entrenched players and generally, thus generally better players are exist and this other client is where the less experienced players the newer players are being funneled into uh so that's where i would think the difference largely comes from um but the the you know that it the result is the same that's a a really good point i think the last thing i'm going to say about it is and it's probably a little bit to do with how i've tailored my twitter feed but just the overwhelming experience from this weekend and people are like you know, this is what happened to me this weekend. You know, this part sucked. This part was great. Whatever, blah, blah, blah. No matter what happened, they were like, it felt great to play limited for, for real stakes again. And I would gladly do this again soon. So I don't know what their internal numbers are on how many people played this versus how many people played against, you know, in the standard ones. But I got to believe that this was probably a success. If it is, we're going to see more of them and maybe more often. And I would like to have the opens be more often. They, they seem really spaced out to me. This is what, like the fourth one they've done? I think, yeah, this might be the fourth one total. Yeah, and they yeah. started them last year, I think over the summer. So f- it's four in the span of like eight months, maybe. So it seems like they've been doing it every couple months. It, it felt like once every three months to me when I was thinking in my mind. And then even then I was like, that might be conservative. It might be four. It might be like we've had like four a year. Oh, uh, well, you know? well, so th- every year, three months half. would make yeah. sense if it's been a nine nine month span from the point they started because yeah. month zero, right. three, six, nine. Yeah. Um. So yeah, every 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 three months sounds about right because that would have put them doing the first one in like May of last year, which sounds about right. And you know maybe it's them. You know this is our trial run. We want to see what the numbers are like. We don't want to promise a bunch of these and then like have not enough people show up because I'm sure there's like some amount of profit they need to make off of them to make this worthwhile for them because there's no way they're not profiting from this. You know from the amount of injuries they go into the amount of payment. I assume they're not losing money on this, but. You know, you still need probably for them to get like the numbers right on everything, and then they're gonna see that these are a little more popular. And then maybe they keep it this way because they're they're expecting you know paper to come back as well, and so like they can't have so many things online that it interferes a lot with paper. So to me, it, it feels like this is something they could honestly be doing monthly, where exactly every yeah. every month you have one, and f- essentially like the the set seasons are three months, right? And so for each set, you do a limited one, a standard one, and a historic one. Maybe you cut out, you know, two of the historic ones or something. Maybe you don't do, run historic as often. But for each set, I think you could pretty easily do a standard and a limited. Mm-hmm. No, I'm right there with you. I think it would be great. Um, speaking of uh, standard, I have a question for you, Ross. And I think you've noticed this. Do you feel like standard is stagnating a little bit in the last week? Yeah. So, you know, when you when you look at the results that happened, we, we had this normal progression where the dopey midrange decks that everybody loves to play but are never actually good do kind of <laughs> well on week one. And you feel so validated saying that, don't you? Yeah, because I just want people to break out of this mold of always wanting dopey midrange decks. 
because it's do you, you know what my theory is is on this i think it's a it's a psychological problem with the way people approach magic where they only uh, uh try to solve problems in a reactive way so the entire goal is to you know say oh if my opponent has X card in their deck, then I need to bring in Y card that says destroy target X card, right? Uh, and then I'll, I'll match them on a one-for-one -one basis. And that just, you know, isn't how magic works. You know, you have to figure out how the trades are and uh, like what if that trade is advantageous for you and you have to really like, you know, craft a real game plan. And is that trade, you know, going to be a, a a significant part of that game plan and if not that card is not going to be very good that's why I've, like every single time i've ever played a creature deck people that have decks with lots of removal spells think they are have a good matchup against me it, and no, so often they just don't i'm like do you not understand that all of your removal spells cost two and three and all of my creatures cost one like i th this doesn't go well for you um you know, it's things like that and it, it it gets people to not be as aggressive as they otherwise should be um and you know takes all of these proactive decks and turns them into mid-range decks um but regardless you know week one we had dopey mid-range decks week two we had ramp deck crushing dopey mid-range decks week three we had aggro decks crushing ramp decks and so i expected people to you know figure out how to beat the aggro decks this week and they just didn't like you know, it was a different aggro deck performing really well. Mono Red was sort of the, the breakout deck along with, with the cycling deck. And Mono White didn't do as well. So it appears that, like, people figured out how to, how to beat Mono White, but then left themselves vulnerable to Mono Red or cycling. But both Mono Red and cycling did well last week. They they just didn't, you know, come away with trophies and put three people in the top eight, didn't add less of a narrative. So if you were paying close attention to the metagame, like, you should have, had like, been testing those matchups and figuring out a plan. And, you know, the Sultai deck continues to see play in pretty high numbers, even though it it's, you know, results haven't been as good. So there's some, like, stubbornness in the metagame, it, it seems like. And it's possible that that stubbornness of, like, people still wanting to play Sultai because it's really cool and everyone fucking loves Sultai for some reason, that I, I'll never understand. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting to me, too, because, like, I, I kind of see what you're saying because, like, it felt like the white decks of come back a little bit which we all kind of expected right yeah they weren't going to be as good as they were yeah and i think it has to do with like you know people playing more shadows verdicts right because it's like really good into the white deck the red deck i think can usually kill you the turn after a little bit better than the white deck does it takes them a little more time to get back up on its feet and moving it, it is resilient it does have a way to do it but shadows verdicts just being a very good card and then there's some splash damage of shadow verd being good against the cycling deck because it just kills all their threats plus it like removes their graveyard yeah, it stops so their Lurises. Yeah, it stops Lurises and stuff like that. It's, it slows down um, their big win condition. But here's here's the thing that I've learned playing against the, the Sultai deck. If you interact with them once with, like, Negate, they're dead. Like, they're just <laughs> dead, like, most of the time. So, like, maybe we see kind of like what happened with the white deck a couple years ago where they started splashing blue in it just for, like, Negate. And, like, you know, they had Deputy of Detention, I think it is as well, as, like, 
There, there might not be a, a correlation of depth because we just have a, a white creature that does that now, so you don't need to do that. But maybe that's what white needs to, you know, get over the hump is like just to have that one thing. But yeah. your we, we've worse, already so. well, we've already seen Gruul do this. Like the Gruul adventure decks are playing eight blue pathways and sideboarding an island to find with Fable Passage, so they have thirteen blue sources post board with by just having the one island, and they bring in you know three negates, maybe a couple disdainful strokes, and that's the way they're they're choosing to combat th- that matchup and having some success doing it uh you know mono white could potentially do something similar it would be a harder splash to to make work uh as actually honestly kind of an impossible one to make work if you want to play faceless haven right so mono white not really open to do, doing something similar uh because their mana base is dependent on snow that, that said like i was surprised not to see some like i'm good against creature decks decks and I don't know if they just don't exist. It feel like it doesn't. It seems like they should exist. No, it's like you said earlier. Like you have these decks that are like, I'm good against creature deck, right? I have a bunch of removal. I have these wrath effects, blah blah blah. And it's like, yeah, but you're still gonna lose the creature decks at times, right? And then now you're worse in the mirror. So like, if you're like a step ahead with your Sultai deck, quote unquote, a step ahead because you're you're more ready for mono white and mono red this weekend. What happens when you play the mirror? You're probably gonna get trounced in game one because you have all this extra removal in your deck, and they have cards that matter. Well, I'm I'm know? thinking about playing a different deck. Like I, I know some people were playing Esper Yorian that popped up. It didn't do particularly well. Maybe some Doom Foretold. Um, you know, but like the, you know that. that's look like it feels like nobody really tried to beat the aggro decks. It feels like everybody would just was like, okay, I guess the aggro decks are really good and I can Sultai's kind of good. I like I I'll pick whichever one I want to play and like hope for the best. Like I just you know, I know I saw the uh there was a post recently on on Twitter with somebody asking, you know, so a, a newer player asking like how quickly metagames games stagnated in the era before Arena. Their thinking was that you know Arena and is driving this, where there's just so many more games played, and the format is being refined and solved faster and faster. I think that's actually just right. I think that is probably one of the biggest things going on. Besides, you know, you can talk about card design, right? Too, like we have so many cards that are just like these are the cards that matter. Like Uro matters, like Embercleave matters, and this is how you're going to end games quickly in these formats. I think the fact that we're playing exponentially more games now that arena is a thing and people are figuring things out faster that that is the main cause or one of the main causes for stagnation and standard recently and it's hard to say otherwise because it's just it just keeps happening every single time i i agree that arena is a significant factor in driving this but I've thought about it, and I'm not sure that it's for the exactly the the reasons that that most people are saying. And I, I was I was generally there w- with this line of reasoning before, but when, when I thought about it more, I think there's a couple other wrinkles at play. Uh, so generally, you know, the, the common refrain is that there's just more games being played, and so the meta game cycle is happening at a higher rate, and so we get to the end game faster, right? And it's mainly, you know, the, the primary mechanism is just volume of games played. Um, but, you know, we had a lot of games played on MTGO, even in, you know, 2015, 2016, uh, 2014, things like, like years like that. I, I'm not sure how, how much different it is now. I'm sure it is pretty significantly, um, but I'm, I'm not sure if it's big enough to create this kind of effect. But the one thing that has happened with Arena that we didn't have before is the sets are being released digitally earlier. You know, 
it, it used to be that leading up to that first open, there wasn't a ton of information out there about what was going to be good. And it, that first open really set the stage for things, right? Especially when Pro Tours were on that same cycle. It used to be like, you know, the the week one open, maybe there was one more week or sometimes like the Pro Tour the week after, things like that. Yeah, we um, used to have like a few days, not a few weeks. Yeah, like the set would be released on a Friday. Sometimes it would be released that Friday and they open with Saturday, right? Um, I remember paying very large amounts of money for cards because of that, yeah. But now, and especially with the pandemic, without the paper events, what we've had is that early access streamer event on Wednesday and a lot of social media hype already building around decks and then a bunch of ladder play over the weekend. And that sort of feels like our week one, right? There's not the results. There's not the top eights that you look at. It's mainly like the t- the Twitter hype. And, uh, you know, is it dragon or whatever? Is it mid-range? Whatever people keep what is, calling it. What is Yeoman 5 talking about? Yeah. You know, like, you know w- w- what did LSV stream over the weekend? Yeah. And, you know, what are what did it like... You know what clip? What did people clip that got that went? You know went throughout the community that everybody saw. Those kinds of things are are driving a lot of it. But the the metagame driving is starting earlier. Is starting that opening weekend uh, when it's released online and, and a few days before. And so I think we're we're all, we're sort of a week ahead of where we think we are because the timeline has shifted. But the other thing I I, I think is there's a psychological impact of these last couple years of sets where every standard format seemed broken. And I think that's where we get to people being resigned to their fate. I think after three weeks, everybody just assumes we're done and we found the best thing because that was true for two years straight. But the thing we found is generally broken. We've got an MPL split, I think, coming this weekend. Yes, if I remember right. who, that is true. Knows? And it's it's my hope that they, they come out with some cool stuff because I cannot imagine that the like this mono red deck that we're seeing, this is not the Bomat Courier, you know, Chandra, Glorybringer, mono red deck. It, the, the cards are not on that power level. Yeah. Especially, you know, this is a much more straightforward red aggressive deck that we're used to seeing win in the opening weeks of a format and then fading away. Maybe, you know, it's sixth round in some capacity, but it's not the best deck. Um, and there are plenty of good anti-aggro cards and tools available. I I think it'll be interesting to see, actually, for the, for the MPL splits and the rival splits where it's a small field, it'll be interesting to see which decks don't show up. What are the decks that Agreed. those people Agreed. agree like are being overrated by the community and aren't actually good? Because that's going to draw like you know they're going to drive the metagame moving forward, and people are going to believe them. And th- those decks are going to drop in percentage. Like, does do they all just say this Sultai deck kind of sucks and nobody really plays Sultai, and the rest of the community sort of follow suit? Do they drop one of the aggro decks and not the other? Do, do they coalesce around one of them? Is, is there a bunch of cycling after that? That's sort of been the third most represented of the three, but its numbers are really strong. Maybe a bunch of them go for cycling, and, and there's less of the monocolored aggro decks. It's actually really consistent too, which is like yeah, a, you, you know, know cycling a, will do that. Yeah, which draws a lot of people to it. The fact that all your games are very similar. Sorry, yeah. no. So the, I that psychological aspect I think is something that is happening where there's just l- less drive to try to innovate because we don't we we've been conditioned now to think that there's we're not going to be rewarded. We're like, what's the point in trying to beat these decks? Like, there's a reason they they rose to the top. I'm not going to be able to find something that beats them. You know, I remember back in, like, you know, in the days of Cawblade. I remember that last PTQ 
they had made the announcement that the ban was going to happen. And back in the day, there was always a bunch of lag time before things, you know, happened. I remember having like the pre-release and then the release was like two weeks or three weeks later. And then the sets weren't even legal for another two weeks after the release. You get like a month. Yeah, yeah there was. So there was like a month between the pre-release and when you actually played the cards in in, pay, in paper tournaments. Um, and the same with bans. Like they announced a ban and it wasn't going to take place or like take effect for two or three weeks. So there was the last round of, of that PTQ season that was going on before Jace and Stoneforge Mystic went away. And so it was everybody's last chance to, you know, play their Cobblade decks. That was when I saw the Twin Blade deck that had, you know, mashed the two together and it was just a monstrosity. But I, I remember at this New England PTQ, there was a techie deck that people had brought to try to beat up Cobblade, and it was Selesnia Infect. Just a deck that was trying to kill you on like turn three and cheese you. You know, the Cobblade deck had Dismember, but it didn't have a ton of cheap removal. And they had a they had a you know cheap counter spells, but you could generally win counter wars usually with the infect deck. Um, and you you were you you just had more one mana spells than they did. They had a lot of one and two with three mana interaction. You were almost all ones, maybe a, a couple twos, uh, right? And so that that like that was their plan. You know, sort of the same way like the hammer time decks in modern were trying to attack Uro, right? You know, pe- people did these kinds of things. Now it feels more like you know we're, it's. I don't know if that's just a consequence of the ruthlessly algorithmic nature of magic now in in the you know the current day, but it feels like there's less there's less people who are willing to to take that risk and try to innovate an established metagame and stay ahead after the first couple of weeks. And that mentality has spread throughout the community. And I think, you know, we now expect this kind of stagnant standard metagame and it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy and we might be missing something. hundred percent agree with you. I hope you're right as well. There's like the, the hope blooms eternal type thing. I hope that we're wrong. There's, there's some cool stuff because I do miss that. Right. I, I miss like, watching the pro tour, watching the pros get the hold of something. And I, I, I remember just like, dude, I can't wait to see what Wafa Tapa plays this weekend because I love control, you know, or what cool deck, you know, comes out of the event. And like you, you rush to go get the cards and get your deck ready and play in the first event you can. And it's like really cool and ready to go. Like I, I, I miss that. And, you know, I got to agree. It's with stuff coming out so early now. It's like you said, like maybe the NPL split could have been moved up two weeks. You know, like, why, why are we waiting so long? It's like, give them first, give them first dibs. I did. Yeah. I always liked when the pro tours were early in the, Same. the metagame cycle. You know, there was, there was usually that one open, like I said, that sort of set the metagame that the pros were going to attack. And then, you know, they could play an established deck or they could go rogue. And we saw some really cool, you know, in, innovations going on. Oftentimes those, you know, pro tour decks didn't really last in the metagame, but sometimes they did. I'm always reminded of the Pro Tour in Barcelona that had that incredible top eight. It was the one that Steve Rubin won with Selesnya Tokens that became a dominant deck that season for at least a couple months. Um, and he he beat, uh, you know, the the Open the week or two before was dominated by Bant Company. And then the, there was the Invitational too, and Mono White Humans did really well. And those were sort of the two big decks going in. And, you know, it was Andrea Mangucci who lost the finals playing Bant Company. Uh, but that top eight was filled with really cool decks. Seth Manfield top eighted with this Esper control deck with Narset Transcendent. It is one of the worst decks I have ever seen. Um, it was a horrible deck, but Seth is just a fucking master. Uh, you know, Brad top eighted with the Gruel Goggles deck, which is one of the coolest decks I've ever seen. Um, and there was the the 
Gol- the Finkel and, and uh, Pantheon played the Golgari Seasons Past, you know, super grindy rock deck. And there's another really cool deck in that top eight. Oh, the 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 Husk Sacrifice decks um, that with like Cryptolithrites that became less sacrificey overall, but people kept playing Cryptolithrites for a while. You know, a lot of really cool decks in, the, in that in that tournament and they were around for at least a little bit. And so you had more variety for a longer time in the metagame cycle. And I think it, you know, for a big tournament like that, where you are paid off by innovating and being right to have that happen early before there's an established metagame increases the, the propensity for people to metagame. And even if the decks that they build don't last throughout the months of that metagame season, then they're still going to be around for some amount of time and create more variety and keep the metagame fresh for a longer period of time than it otherwise would have been. 100% agree with you. Um, I'm going to tangent for two seconds because we've already talked about this on the show. I just got an update on Tiger Woods. Yeah. Um, it's not good. Uh, he apparently has crush injuries to both legs, one of which is a compound fracture. If you are listening to this right now and you don't know what a compound fracture is and you Google it, do not look at images especially if you're squeamish it is not good but yeah. uh sorry i just thought you'd you'd want that update so i just his, saw it on twitter his le- one at least one of his legs got smushed that's badly. not good yeah badly you need- like yeah it's it's not looking good for him so I, I i feel for him but anyway like going back to this and i was going to kind of like segue into this the, this thing that happened over the week that i want to talk about for like a couple seconds about yeah we get the stuff so far ahead of time we get the release um Speaking of things being released way too early or the timing being weird, we got five cards from the new set released this weekend, which is oh yeah, way I forgot ahead, about that. Way ahead of time. And uh it's pretty cool. So if anyone doesn't know, this is called Strixhaven, right? I think is what it's called. Yeah, or Hogwarts Strixhaven, something like that. Yeah, Hogwarts it's yeah, <laughs> it's it's the wizard schooling thing, right? And so like it's pretty cool because these five cards are cards that I am big fans of in the history of magic. They, they gave us a command for five different color combinations. And I'm guessing these are like the houses in the wizarding school. They, thing. they are. Yeah. So um, I'm really excited about this. We're going to talk about these cards and the other little things that came along, but um, I'm just going to, you know, read them off and talk to you about them for like two seconds. You don't have to go like super deep into them, but I'm excited about this because, and I'm gonna tell you why Ross, we've talked about this on the show. I am actually pretty looking forward to throne of eldraine rotating out of standard because i like the power level of all the sets that have come after it and feel that like that's going to feel a little bit more like the magic that i'm used to and the magic that i enjoyed more and hey you know what? if you enjoy what's going on now that's fine that, that's, that's okay with you I, I just that's not me right and seeing stuff like commands come back where spells matter and like maybe juking for positioning in that way instead of just like trying to see who has what nut draw uh, in magic right now is it, something that I look forward to and like being able to position yourself, you know, correctly and like move around and stuff. But, uh, so we got five different commands. I think it's pretty cool that we get the names for the houses, which is really cool. So, you know, what house you're going to be like, quote unquote, sorted into, you know, if you're a Golgari player, then you're going to be in the Witherbloom house. Cause the, the green black one is Witherbloom command. And this is the one that immediately got my eye out of the five, because you're looking at a different casting cost for almost every single one of them. And let me, let me rephrase that. They're, they're not looking at a different converted mana cost for almost all of them. You're looking at a different mana value <laughs> yes. for almost all of them. We're going to get into that in one second here. But this is the one that stood up for me because this one's two mana. And if something's two mana, if the card is remotely playable, it's very good. And so, um, and I got to say, thankfully, this one's a sorcery. So it's just green and a black. And it says, these say choose two. So this is, this is the commands that were like 
the OG commands, you know, like kind of like the cryptic command cycle yeah. or the ones Austere from Austere uh, command, uh, incendiary command, uh, yeah, primal command, and profane and command. Primal. Uh, primal command, uh, profane command is what cost me that Grand Prix against Seth Manfield. Our decks were well, very similar. That card is messed up. I remember it opening it the at the Lorwyn pre release. Yeah. <laughs> it was the best card in the set in limited. Um, yeah, so uh, it's like these, or if you're a little bit, you know, newer to Magic, it's uh, what, what exact set from was it? Cons of Tarkir had them. It was one of the Tarkir sets. I yeah, it was one I of the know, dragon like sets. That. You know, because there was like Drom, you know, it was Dromar's command and Kolagon's command it was from the dragons, oh, yeah. right? So those would have been and in so Dragons one, of Tarkir. I'm sure there's somebody at home right now. It's just like read the damn card, Tannen. All right, so it's it's green and black. It's a sorcery. It's choose two. So you should choose two of the four. Target player mills three cards, and you return a land card from your graveyard to your hand. Uh, destroy target non-creature, non-land permanent with mana value two or less. Uh, target creature gets minus three, minus one until end turn, and target opponent loses two life, and you gain two life. I don't think this card is very powerful, powerful. But if you could ever get two of the modes to be relevant, I think it, it's good. The problem is I don't see you getting two of these modes to be that relevant on turn two. So like this isn't really a sorcery that you're going to be playing on turn two. But it might find a niche somewhere. I mean, it's possible. But I think the biggest thing coming from this card is the fact that it says mana value on it. So uh, no longer are we going to have converted mana costs. We're going to have mana value. Is, is and that I think confirmed? This is why they're... Yes. I think this was a little bit... Uh, well, I didn't listen or read the damn I'm, thing. I'm just wondering if, if it, what other if people it possibly about. means something different. Based on context, I, I just I can't imagine it does, but... It might be them fixing the damn rules when they since they've been having so many problems with it over the last few years, especially with like split cards. This might it might be able to this might be the way that they can change the rules and not mess stuff up, kind of like we talked about with Valky and Tybalt. So, uh, give me a, a quick reaction. You don't have to go too deep. I, anything, anything about this card catch your eye? I don't think this all? card is is very good. I you know the so in particular the. The first three modes all seem particularly defensive. Like you're getting an extra land and you're spending mana to do it. That's a, a you know that needs to go in a slow deck. And that last mode is really an, a more aggressive mode. So we're already f- sort of fighting with each other a little bit. I think you know the while destroy target non creature non land per oh and it's non creature. It doesn't even kill creatures. Yeah, I thought it was like an, a draw. bad abrupt decay, but it's not. So it destroys like odd like it it. What artifacts and enchantments does it kill? Like it's just you can't you can't let it kill a creature because this is, this would be too good against aggro decks that go one drop two. Oh drop yeah, and like you just kill, kill two things. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that that, that would creatures. that would be too yeah. good. Uh, but the the creature removal mode is also not very good. You know, minus one toughness is very restrictive. You get a little bit more paid off with the minus three, but in order to actually get paid off with that, you need it to be an instant so you can use it as a combat trick, and you can't even do that because it's a sorcery. So th- this card seems very underpowered to me. I, I, I will say this. If, like, the mono red and mono white decks are good, right? And you're still getting, like, a lot of a lot of matchups with the 3 1 out of the white deck, and that's a two drop that's really good. Killing that and gaining two life or two mana, I can dig it. You know, like, I, I can cast that card. I don't think it's good. I mean, like I said, like, ugh. as a sorcery? I'm, just, I'm trying to think of an adaptation. I'm trying to think of a, of a way to make this happen. Like, right? Moment right. of anyway. Craving was an okay sideboard card sometimes, and it yeah. was an instant and only one color. Yeah, yeah exactly. All right. So this, so the next one, this is the Orzov one, the black white one. You are a silver quill. Uh, so this is silver quill command. Uh, target creature gets plus three plus three and gains flying until end of turn. I'm sorry, this is four mana by the way. It's two black white and it's a sorcery. So target creature gets plus three plus three and gains flying until end of turn. 
Return target creature card of converted mana with, I'm sorry, mana value two, or, I'm so used to it. Mana value two or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. Target player draws a card and loses one life. Target opponent sacrifices a creature. This is one that I could get behind a little. I agree. I could see this. I, one I could get behind this one too. I think all. I think all four modes can be relevant a lot of the time on this one. So you're going to get a lot of versatility out of it. I think that first mode is great when you need to be attacking planeswalkers. Exactly, kills a planeswalker. Yeah, yep. you know that the second mode obviously there's a plenty of really high value targets to bring back. Mm -hmm. Whether it's you know seasoned Hallowblade or um, Luminarch Aspirant. Or Valky, or yeah, yeah. Valky's great. Yeah, yeah, you know, even something like Myra Triton could be kind of cool. Um, you know, so I th there's plenty of targets there, and then the other two are just you know, oftentimes very solid. Like sometimes you get a big creature with that last ability. Sometimes it's not very good. So I, I do think this is a very aggressive card. Like you, you want it. You need to be able to use those first two modes pretty uh, often for this card to be good. I don't think a, a slow control deck is going to want to play this as four mana edict to draw a card, lose a life. No, I think this is more along the lines of if, if there's like a black white aggressive deck, it's going to be like you killed one of my early creatures, and then on turn four I'm like get that creature back, make you sacrifice like your 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 blocker or something along those lines, or grow one of my creatures to attack your planeswalker, get back my two draw. You know, you know what this could be good with is party. Because you're able to get back Ooh. whichever like hole you're missing Ooh. in the party. Yeah, I like that. I like that. All right, the next one. Uh, this is one that immediately I got interested in because of uh, the propensity to make Simic the best cards <laughs> in the last couple of years. This is how would you pronounce? Oh, it's Quandrix, I think is how you pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, that's Quandrix what I would say. Command. Yeah. So this one is one green blue, and it's our first instant. So this is pretty cool. Um, it's choose two. Return target creature or planeswalker to its owner's hand. Counter target artifact or enchantment spell. Put two plus one plus one counters on target creature. Target player shuffles up to three target cards from the graveyard to the library. I think this one has some of the weakest parts of some of the other ones, but I do see this one possibly being a card that could be good because being able to bounce something and also counter something, well, it's going to be very narrow or whatever. Or, hey, uh, bounce your planeswalker, grow my guy kind of thing. Um, I think this one could maybe find a home. I'm not super excited about it. I agree. I, I don't think this is the kind of card that you're stuffing four copies of into your deck. This is the kind of card that is flexible enough that you like having access to one, maybe two. Um, because it's really, the problem is that last mode is just bad. It's, it's just bad unless there's specifically something it's trying to target, obviously. All yeah, right. I mean, obviously, like, sometimes you're going to be able to, because it's target play, um... Because it's target player and not just yourself, you can, like, shuffle your opponent's escape cards into their deck, you know, uh, so you can deal with, like, Croxa and a Skyclave Shade that way. So against, like, Rakdos, that last mode is going to come up. Um, so the, there's specific matchups where it can be good, but in general, and that's what, you know, I'm where I'm evaluating to think about it as a main deck card, um, you know, it's, it's more going to come down to how valuable that return target creature or Planeswalker mode is. You know, how, how good is it to get, you know, three mana bounce spell plus? You know, I, you and I both remember the days of Repulse being, you know, the best removal spell in standard. Um, you know, the, those days are gone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think you could reprint that card nowadays, and, like, we probably wouldn't even see it make constructed. So I'm not sure, though. We'll see. Yeah, it, it, it is still an instant. I mean, you, when, you, when your opponent goes, like, three mana creature, go, and you're like, okay, repulse it back to your hand, draw a card. Yeah, like, yeah it's still be really good, yeah, obviously. So, 
Um, they just don't make cards like that anymore. All right, the next one, this is the one that I was the most excited to read uh, because it's like right up my alley. You know, this is my kind of card. This is Prismari Command. It's the red-blue one. You know, this is, this is if I had to identify with one two-color combination, this is probably it, you know, especially like the older formats. And I think this is one of the stronger ones, if not the strongest one. And you're going to see it get compared to a card that got played and is being played in modern quite a bit. So people are excited about this one just a little bit. It's an instant. Um, it's deal two damage to any target. Draw two, discard two. Target player creates a treasure token. Destroy target artifact. So there's some Colagon command comparisons here, right? You know, the two damage, destroy target artifact. But I got to say this. I actually like this one a little bit. Especially against certain decks, right? Like, can you imagine this against the the aggressive decks of Embercleave? Like, Mono Red, where you're like, all right, they're like, attack you, Embercleave, and you're like, kill that thing, kill your Embercleave, or whatever. That's obviously pretty good. Or just on turn three, you're like, kill your thing at the end of your turn, kill your thing, create a treasure token, untap, cast a dragon, you know, cast a gold span dragon on turn four and have two more man up or something like that. You know, if you can get any extra value out of this, it's good. Draw two, discard two is not, is, is actually pretty powerful to tack onto a card like this just because. Yeah, discarding two is not great. You know, it's not like I think if you just draw two, discard one, it would be bonkers. Oh yeah, but <laughs> just getting yeah, but just getting through your deck is big. And then like, let's not forget, there's like ways to abuse discarding cards too. So like, I think this is one that could show up in some constructed decks. Yeah, I think this one is being overhyped among the five. Oh, for sure. Um, but it's probably because the, some of the other ones are so bad. Yeah. Um, so and and this one to me has, has a kind of high range. I wouldn't be surprised if it sees absolutely no play, and I wouldn't be surprised if it you know is a standard staple. <laughs> um, so it has a pretty wide range for me. Obviously, like 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 you, I have an affinity towards uh, the the is it um, you know blue red uncastables. Yeah, yeah, the is it mediums. So I, I'm excited to try it. I like that. Um, I will tell people right now. This is not a card that is going to like revive Arclight Phoenix in any sort of format. I'm sure there's plenty of people that see is it card, draw two, discard two, and we're like Arclight Phoenix, let's go, but it costs three mana. You can't play three mana spells in your Arclight Phoenix deck. Don't even Yo, try. Put it in standard, I'll I'll do it. Put Arclight back in standard. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. In, in standard, maybe you could do something like that and ha- have it be a role player in your deck, but not in, in any older format. All right. And the last one, which has the best art, not close. Are you looking at them right now? It's a giant mammoth elephant thing, but I want you to look in the bottom left-hand corner with the little wizard chick. They have a scroll, right? But it's a freaking Gatling gun that's a scroll. Like, it's a gun that they're firing. Like, look at that thing. Like, how cool is that? This, this I don't know. The artwork on this is just like, there's some... It's like they said they gave someone an idea and they were like, just fucking run with it. Just go. Like, just You know, do some crazy shit. All right, anyway. This is Lorehold Command. It's three red-white. And uh, it's an instant. So this one's the most expensive one. So I'm, I'm hoping that this one's going to be big and great, but we'll have to find out. Create a 3-2 red and white spirit creature. Just the 3-2, no, no flying or anything like that. Creatures you control get plus one plus one and gain indestructible and haste until end of turn. Uh, this deals three damage to any target. Target player gains three life. And then it says sacrifice a permanent, then draw two cards. I feel underwhelmed, Ross. Um, I will say this. It being an instant, I see why it has to be five mana as an instant because of the sacrifice of permanent draw two cards. They don't want it to be, like, too cheap and broken. It, like, you know, you, you don't want to give someone, like, a three mana card that can do this. And then someone's, like, uh, use a three mana removal spell on your creature. And you're, like, 
three mana, sacrifice my creature, draw two cards, and make a 3-2. Like, that would be horrible to have to play against. I'm, I'm thinking of mainly it being a, you know, 3-2, really a 4-2 that sort of that pumps your team and sets up a really big attack, or like end step, make a 3-2, deal you three damage, finish you off kind of spell. Like, this feels to me like the curve topper in an aggro deck, where that last mode is actually the least relevant. You know, you use it when you are really low on gas and you're not that far away from killing them. So you're like, okay, you know, make a 3-2, draw a couple cards or kill your thing, gain a little bit of life, sacrifice my irrelevant car- my relevant cheap creature, draw a couple cards. Um, the problem I have with that is that, is this card better than Goldspan Dragon? Like, it, it, this to me feels like a card that's always going to be competing with Goldspan Dragon, and I don't think it's better. Mm-hmm. We'll have to see what the set's going to look like. Maybe there's an incentive to play instance. Maybe there's an incentive to like make these cheaper, etc. You know, if like there is a you know what is it, a Goblin Electromancer type card that's going to be good in the set. We'll have to see. Like, there's a lot up to it, but I'm not super, you know, barreled over. Yeah, it's also fighting with a Showdown of the Scalds, by the way, which is a card that wants yeah. you to play really low curve as opposed yeah. to more expensive, more versatile cards. And like, yeah, does your control deck really want a five mana instant to? lightning helix a creature and then maybe block another one no like for five mana i don't think that's what we want to be doing when we're playing planeswalker or something like that so i'll say this for constructed the jury's out on these but i'm not super excited for limited i think they're they're bombs i think they're gonna be super great and fun um one more thing about the set so this set is going to introduce another what was the word they always used to encompass all of them um you know, the inventions and uh, expeditions, you know, just like the, the the cool things and packs that you ever now and then get. So it looks like we're getting something like that in this set. And um, we're going to get cards from the set itself, just like in the past, but we're going to get other cards from the history of magic as well that are being, and three, the three that they've shown so far are three pretty big cards, like iconic cards. So, and they kind of hit at different levels. And I'm going to talk about the, the one that hits in standard quite a bit and like a little bit in, in modern as well, opt is in this. So there's a cool new art for Opt that looks really funky. You'd have to see this. I can't, I cannot describe this to you. Hold on. What the yes. hell are you talking about? You haven't seen this? Are you on Mythic Spoiler right now? Yes. Scroll down just a tiny bit past those five cards. Wh- Do you see the... Oh, this nonsense. Holy okay, shit. The... All right. Just, okay, stop being a naysayer. Let me get through it. Yeah, I know you're not a big fan, but Opt's cool. You know, it's a good standard card. It's played in, it's played in modern. Then you get a legacy card. In here that we've that we've seen previously before in Swords to Plowshares. This is one that hasn't been, you know, done like this in a while. So this is really cool to see a new take on Swords to Plowshares. And then the one that people got real excited about, because this is a really cool commander card and it's actually just extremely expensive too, is Demonic Tutor. Also, it got some new wording on Demonic Tutor. Search your library for a card, put it in your hand, then shuffle. It's like, you know, okay, sure. Um it's a really cool thing. I, I wonder how much money it saves them to not print your library. <laughs> on cards how much ink is that saving i will say this i think it was mark nestica or somebody like printed you know uh tweeted this like the picture of the card and they're like shuffle what and they like there's a picture of them doing the truffle shuffle do the truffle yeah, shuffle yeah it's something like that just whatever i'll say this i've liked most of the uh crazy art in the past i liked the Amonkhet ones more than most people even though you couldn't read the cards these look a little weird to me personally. They're, it's an art style that I'm not a huge fan of, though I do think they look cool and people will like them. It's going to freak me out in paper when someone plays one of these because I'm not going to know what it is. But do you see the cards right above them? The what now? Are you seeing two? Are you seeing the cards above them that are in Japanese? 
Yes. So, apparently, there's alternate art for the alternate arts, but only in Japanese. So the one above Swords of Policy is the Swords of Policy, the one above yeah, Off yeah. is Off, and the one above Demonic Tutor is Demonic Tutor. And these are straight fire, in my opinion. Like, I would go out of my way to get these. Like, when I saw these, I was like, my my wallet groaned. I was like, oh, no. Because they look amazing. Like, very, very good. And they are textless. I'm sorry. They have text. They are borderless and don't have a name on them. Oh, I, I guess they technically have a name, but it's done in, like, this stylized uh, vertical box on the top left corner with, uh, you know, with, you know, Japanese lettering for the name. There's no bar across the top like you would normally see. There's just more of the picture. And then the mana cost looks really cool, kind of just floating there because these cards are all really cheap. So there's not a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of stuff taking up space there. While as much as I'm, like, not a fan of the other artwork, you know, it's just not my thing, this is totally my thing. This looks amazing. None of this is my thing. This is exactly really not glad, my thing. I'm really glad that I don't have decks that play these cards very much because I would just be, like, having to get them or whatever. But this looks this looks amazing. I think it's great. Um, I was going to say, we had, the, we had the other art come out for uh, Black is Magic as well, and they're, they're doing some, some really cool stuff with that. So they've been pushing art quite a bit. In the last few years, with like a lot of cool reprints. The entire like, last all this is three agreeable. years of Magic is just the Jurassic Park meme. Like, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they never stopped to think whether or not they should. Oh, they, they thought about it, Ross, but here's the thing. Have you ever heard of the word money? Wizards is literally just printing money. Ah, I know. I don't know if you've noticed. It's the joke about, like, we got... Wait a minute. I feel like... Kaladin, like, just came out, right? Like, we haven't even really let it have its heyday yet, right? We're about to have our first MPL split with it legal. Like, it hasn't even had an MPL split, right? We just had an open, right? We're getting preview cards for the next set? For Strixhaven? Like, I feel like I'm getting preview, like... Yeah, this has been happening for years. Stop! Right. Please, for the love of God, stop! But I will say this. I love magic, and there's people out there that like magic way more than I do, and they always want more of it. And so... You're always got something to look forward to. You're always getting previews Give of some kind. Give me quality over quantity, Tannen. Dude, it's good for the. It's good. We've talked. I, I no, it's good for their bottom line. I'm. I'm not. That's true. I'm not. I'm no longer going along with this. It's good for the game thing. Honestly, it's probably not. Yeah. Let me, let me, Long let me term, it's not. Thinking about it, it's probably not because it's probably why we're getting kind of shittier. Yeah, stuff we already talked about this. This is already yeah. a rant that I have gone on, Tannen. So no, I kind I'm, of muscle memory just said that, and yeah. like, I don't agree with the words that came out of. But my like, mouth. and th- what is this? I don't like. I don't even recognize these as magic cards anymore. I don't know what. I don't know what fucking Yu-Gi-Oh box they came out of. Did you Did you hear the joke I made earlier? I don't know if you were you were you could hear me when you were. I had to like kind of soliloquy for a minute when you had to go change the batteries in your in your smoke detector. Um, I joked about like when I was doing the the Grand Prix Atlanta thing and I was building my sealed pool on on uh, on the camera. I opened the last pack and there was a there was an invention in it. And I was just like, what the hell is it? What is this Yu-Gi-Oh card? <laughs> yeah, I literally said that. I was like, is this a Yu-Gi-Oh card? I don't know what this is. You know, and I was like, look, it says, it says magic wording on it, but I had to ask the judge. I was like, can I play this? Because like, I'm sure other people knew and stuff going in. I had no idea. <laughs> did, did I win something? Do I get to go to somebody's chocolate factory? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, do I get to go to a chocolate factory and maybe die? Like, how does this work? Do I fall into a mountain of, uh, what's, was it chocolate, chocolate, uh, what do they call it? Chalky milk or whatever? Choco milk or the Some, story, I, whatever. I'm, I'm not even sure if I've ever seen the, the original. I don't know if I've seen either of them. Of, of the ch- Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Yeah. How have you not seen the original? 
with the, with Gene Hackman and yeah, Gene Hackman's a is a goddamn national treasure. Like what's was was sorry, but yeah, he's amazing. Oh, I've I've just never seen it. I guess uh, regardless, I haven't seen the new one. Like holy shit. Give me three weeks or something before I got to start thinking about more fucking cards. I'm old. Yeah. Yeah. We're, I'm getting spoiler whiplash. Yeah. I think is the way I want to put it. I can't, I can't keep all the cards straight anymore. And it's literally my job to do that. All right. We're going to go back to uh, one other thing before we start kind of doing the, uh, the slowdown of the show here. And I know you kind of wanted to take a peek, a little look-see-poo in on what's been going on in modern and pioneer, because there was some cool stuff going on overall. You know, we're getting our first, uh, tournaments here after the you know the big amount the big amount of bands and then there's a deck or two that really caught your eye so go ahead yeah so uh you know when it comes down to modern and, and pioneer you know major bands huge shakeup of the format and early results azorius control is sort of the default blue deck of choice it won the nrg event or lost the finals of the nrg event and won one of the challenges uh, so two really good finishes. We saw a little bit of Esper littered around as well, but it's that similar Azorius base. I think one of the, the big winners in the bands is Snapcaster Mage, which I'm very happy about, and I'm sure you are too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that card was banned for a while in modern. It yeah. made me sad. I w- also saw a real strong showing from the Selesnya Heliod deck. Took second place in both challenges, first place in in one of them. So th- three of the four final spots across the two challenges were Selesnya Heliot. That's that's really impressive to be three of the four. And I know this is a deck you've been a pretty big fan of for about a year and a year. Yeah, and, a half and I honestly, I I I was surprised by this because in my mind the Hammer Time decks were more than just a metagame choice. They I think I thought they were just better creature combo decks, but I think I was wrong. What what happened is the format has slowed down enough that the resilience of the Heliod deck, and this deck is very resilient, is what's winning over as opposed to the speed of the, the Hammer Time deck. And I've always been generally impressed by the resilience of the Hammer deck, and so I thought that gap was small enough that it was just better overall. But based on the results from this last weekend, and we'll see if that holds true over a larger sample, uh, the, the Celestia Heliod deck looks to be restaking its claim as the premier creature combo deck in modern. And that's super cool. This deck is is really, really fun. There's a lot of cool stuff now with Conclave Mentor. You know, I'm sure main deck Oriok Champion, also a big part of this deck succeeding because, you know, the, the default deck for last weekend was something with Monastery Swift Spear. Because those decks were doing well, even in the face of Uro, Mystic Sanctuary, Field of the Dead. And they showed up in force. There was Burn, there was Monorate Prowess, there was Izzet Prowess, there was Rakdos Shadow, there was Jun Shadow. You know, every single variant of those decks that you can think of showed up. So it's unclear, you know, how that hierarchy and that category of decks is going to shake out over the next couple of weeks. But rest assured that if you want to be winning in modern right now, priority number one is how am I responding when my opponent casts turn one Monastery Swift Spear? Um, you know, essentially like, you know, those, those are the big winners. Some of the cool new decks, this, uh, you know, the bring to light deck, which is really a spiritual successor to the Omnath Euro deck, but rather than have that field of the dead end game, they have two Valakets and a scape shift. Uh, so one scape shift to fight off of bring to light, which is really cool. And then one Valky, because you can still tip off of bring to light, um, you know, so you've got this really, you know, flexible tool that can find, you know, uh, you know, 
a sweeper if you need it. They've got so, some angular gods on the sideboard, but generally is either going to find Scapeshift to kill them or find Valky to kill them when Scapeshift doesn't. Um, and, and, you know, all the, you know, common, uh, the usual suspects around that, Red and Six, Teferi Time Raveler, Cryptic Command, Force Negation, Growth Spiral, you know, cheap spot removal of, you know, bolts and paths, uh, whatever mix there is. I think that deck is really, really good. And if you were a you know a fan of playing Uro before, that's a deck I would look into. Um, the cool decks I wanted to high. Ooh, I, I I would be remiss if I skipped over Dredge, another big resurgent deck. I talked about this in my article this week, which is all about different sideboard cards that you should be looking at for this weekend for Modern. Uh, and you know, going back to really powerful graveyard hate because of how good Dredge has been doing was something that I wrote about. Dredge definitely showed up. You know, this is a deck that's going to be around as long as you're not prepared for it. So, you know, if you don't want to lose to Dredge, do it. Tron decks, also big winners. N- not really surprising. Field of the Dead was a huge shot in the arm to Primeval Titan decks. So the ban of it has shifted the balance of big mana archetypes in Modern back so, towards Tron. So, so wait, let me say, let me ask this. So you're telling me that when you, like, take away some of its natural predators that turn three and Karn... And people are still trying to play these weird mid-range decks in modern. That it's good. It's good for Tron. <laughs> tell me more. Anyway, tell ahead, me sorry. more. Tell me more. Like, does he have a car? <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't need one. <laughs> uh, tell me more. Tell me more. Like, does he have a car? <laughs> does he have a car? I can't That's believe I didn't do that the first we, time. We probably take that whole song and make it a Tron. I'm, anyway. I'm so disappointed that I didn't find that the first time. Um, but I thought that you were actually gonna say that. The uh the deck I really wanted to highlight was from the first ooh, challenge ooh, on the weekend. Ooh. This is twenty-sixth place. Yep. God, I hope this deck is good because it is genius deck building. Like just gigantic brain deck building from tenth degree. I am I am in love with this deck already. It is a hollow one deck. I know it's been a long time since we've seen Hollow One, but we're playing Hollow One, but it's not all in on Hollow One. We've got four of them. We got four flame flame blade adepts. We got goblin lore and burning inquiry. No looting, obviously, because that's banned. But the backup plan is what's really cool. First, we've got Ox of Agonis, three copies. That's a really awesome card to have because your graveyard fills up really quickly with inquiry, goblin lore, and it you know Ox of Agonis refuels you, lets you keep going. It's also a four power creature to return. Um, Oh, I, w- I was thinking we had the Phoenix in our deck, but it's Flameblade Adept. Um, we don't have the the Flame Flame Hollow Phoenix. Maybe we should. Uh, that's something I, I would consider because Hollow One and Ox both trigger it. Not four, but, you know, small numbers. Uh, regardless, the cool part of this deck is using one of the cards that I talked about a lot in our set review show, because I believe in the power of it, is Burgie, God of Storytelling. And they're playing Burgie with Underworld Breach. And I'll let you think about that for a second. And you hopefully you realize that with Burning Inquiry, you just form a loop. Oh, yeah, that's actually really cool. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So you get to, you cast, you know, say, yeah, like, yeah. say you cast Burning Inquiry on turn one, right? And then you play a hollow one. You, you got lucky. You got one hollow one. Uh, that's pretty cool. You know, then your opponent, like, dealt with it. You know, maybe they, t- they took four, took eight. Maybe they dealt with it immediately. Um, and, and, you know, now that now they're feeling good, like they, they dealt with your hollow one, you know, whatever, they're going to keep, keep doing their thing. When you play Burgie and you have a mana available and it's not like you need to get to four mana because with this deck, you got both a lava dart that you can have in your graveyard, say off a burning inquiry to sacrifice immediately and get up to a red mana. Or you also have three copies of Mishra's bobble that you could have in your deck. 
Um, with Burgi and Underworld Breach, you cast Burning Inquiry, you get your red mana back that you spent into it, and you get three more cards in your graveyard from the Inquiry, and then you can just cast it again with Underworld Breach. So you actually go through your entire deck if you want to. You can eventually generate some extra mana with Lava Darts and things. You can cast Ox of Agonuses. You, you know, ideally you have a Flameblade Adept on the battlefield that is now like 30 power, right? Because you've get capped, ca- cast Burning Inquiries over and over again. You can also, like, if your opponent is further through their deck than you are, you can just deck them. Like, you know, if you, especially if they have an exact, you know, uh, multiple of three cards in their deck and you're, you know, one over, two over, you know, you can potentially deck them. Or, you know, more like more than likely, you've gotten your opponent low, they've stabilized, the deck has two Grape Shots in it. So you get to the point where hopefully you can just cast a couple Lava Darts normally to generate a couple extra mana. So you're casting all these Burning Increase along the way, each one is netting you three cards in your graveyard and the one mana, just enough to keep the loop going, right? But you hit a Lava Dart along the way, instead of exiling the Lava Dart immediately, you cast it, you get an extra red mana, you haven't changed the number of cards in your graveyard because the Lava Dart leaves, the mountain that you sacrificed to cast it enters, um, and you now you can keep going with an extra red mana there, right? And then, so hopefully with just two Lava Darts left in your deck and a couple of mountains lying around, you get the two mana you need to eventually hit a Grape Shot and Grape Shot them for, you know, a, the number of cards in your library divided by three rounded down. <laughs> plus one. Uh, because the, oh, and plus the Lava Darts. You actually get a few, a few more than that, right? Um, so this deck is just sweet. Because all the parts like work, work together, you've got the the combo plan could potentially win a game by itself, but more than likely is just there to finish them off. Because I think that combo is really really good at dealing like fifteen and really really bad at dealing twenty. <laughs> so Flameblade Adept and Hollow One are actually integral parts of setting up the combo because you need to you know deal a little bit of damage early on. And then Burgi, of course, gives you a little more resilience because of of, of Harnfell, the 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 backside of it. Um, yeah, this deck just seems awesome to me, and I'm you know it, it's a pretty bare bones construction. There's not anything you know crazy going on. The one thing I will say is the you know I might want one or two more lands. I almost always say that about decks, um, but there's not a lot of space for them. But uh, the deck just looks awesome. I I'm in love, Tannen. Speaking of decks looking awesome and being in love, I kind of wanted to talk like. Can we switch to, to Pioneer and this deck that you showed me that did well in one of the uh, in one of the challenges this weekend? Which deck because are you talking about? I like the mono red one, but this uh, blue black Luris deck. Oh, the the it's me? Grixis, isn't it? I'm sorry, it's Grixis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But okay, so so here's the thing: after um, all the bans that happened and the changing of some of the way that uh, the rules work around the card, uh, Valky, God of Lies, I thought we were kind of done with. Valky getting cheated into play besides like bring the light or whatever, but it seems there's a new way to do this that's showing up in Pioneer, and this deck looks really cool. Yeah, it's it's just a you know it's a Grixis control deck that he's mm-hmm. using Luris, and you know the it's, it's sort of using Luris as an afterthought because your main win conditions are Valky, which you know can be cast normally, right? Um, as, as after you're you know you're done you know killing all your opponent's stuff and drawing a bunch of cards. Um, and we're playing Jace Friends Prodigy as well, which is another you know reasonable win condition, um, and uh, nice cards to recur with Luris as well. Uh, but the key combo here is Valky God of Lies and Release to the Wind. 
Uh, this is a car that people at home might need me to read for them, so I'm going to do that real quick because I had to check it myself. This is two in a blue instant. Um, exile, target non-land permanent. For as long as that card remains exile, it, exiled, its owner may cast it without paying its mana cost. Ross, why is this card in the deck? Well, you can release to the wind your own Valky and then cast mm-hmm. it without paying its mana cost. And when you cast it, you can choose to cast Tybalt. Yay! Yay! Yay. Three minute to Yeah, just how the card is intended to be played. Yes. Magic as Garfield intended. Yeah, but otherwise, like, this just looks... Honestly, you know what this is to me? Like, when I look at it, this it it has the feel to it, a little bit of it. It looks like the Inverter deck. It has, like, this two-card combo thing kind of going on, followed up by a bunch of, like... Because there's four dig-through time in this deck. You're looking at Heroes Downfalls, Fatal Pushes, Eliminates, Ops... Thought seizes, duresses, all that kind of stuff, like all the good blue black cards. And I was like, this just feels, is this like the new inverter? This, it's possible that this might, it matters how good it actually is. And when people know what's going to happen, because like, here's the thing you're going to get a little bit of uh, some extra value out of this when like you're the first person to do it, right? People are like, what, what's going on? You know, wait, 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 what, what, what? You know, they, and now people know to play around release to the wind, possibly, but. This deck's just super cool. I'm I'm in. And and there's only so much you can do to like play around it. One, you know, it's a you know it's a turn three play potentially, and they actually get to they get to see your hand with the Valky on turn two, so they know if you have an instant and you're you try to hold it up right, unless you top decked it, it uh, you know that turn. But you don't even have to you know go for it turn two turn three. You can set it up, you know, interact a bunch on the first few turns. You've got a ton of discard to see if the coast is clear at any point. But instead, you can just interact for the first three turns, dig through time on turn four, and then turn five, go Valky, hold, have released the wind up immediately. Release to the wind. And, and you, you know, if your opponent's tapped out, you just, you know, play your five mana, Tibble, and, and you're good to go. Or you play your Valky, see their hand again, and... Ha- you know, see that they have a, a removal spell and have the release to the wind. Because if your opponent goes for the removal spell and you release the wind in response, now you've set up your tibble and your opponent's down a, a card. So there, there's, you know, when, when you're a control deck and you have combos like this, your opponent can't really bring in a ton of reactive cards to stop that combo. Because that's your game plan. When you're a four dig through time deck, you're really happy every single one for one card your opponent puts in their deck. Because eventually you're just going to dig three times and, you know, cast a Jace and have a bunch of answers up and you're going to just grind them into dust. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is a great shell for it. I, I I had not seen that parallel. You know, that didn't jump off the page to me of the parallel with Inverter, but you're 100% right. You know, that's what this deck is. It's not as powerful of a combo, obviously, but still pretty powerful and in a, a very good shell because it really was that shell that made Inverter good. Um, yeah, all the other cards around it are just very, very powerful. Yeah, just had all the best cheap interaction, and then a really you know powerful win condition over the top. And it, there's a lot, plenty of room for the the win condition itself to be powered down, and the deck to still be really good. And that's what you're seeing here. Uh, definitely a deck to keep your eye on, you know, moving forward, uh, because it, it could uh, it could be a monster. Oh, absolutely! This deck makes me feel things. When I look at it, like, let's put it this way. If there was, you know, there, unfortunately there is paper magic available where I live and it shouldn't, there shouldn't be. But if there was like a tournament coming up, I I would, I would probably 
playtest this deck and play it. This looks cool. Um, I literally just messaged my buddy who works at LGS, and I was like, hey, can you just, like, grab me for this bulk rare? I'll, <laughs> I'll give you a decent value on them because they're, like, 50 cents on TCT right now, but I don't feel like giving TCT $2 and then pay, like, $4 in shipping yeah. or whatever. So I was like, yeah, just, just grab them and, like, I'll drive by one day and grab just, just in case because, like, if this gets if this deck gets really good, I don't think Release the Wind is going to be, like, super expensive. They're just going to be hard to find. Yeah. It's 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 a rare from um what's which one is this? is this Rivals of Ixalan or Ixalan? I have no idea. It is. Hold on, I'm looking it up. It's Rivals of Ixalan. Sure. This is a random. It was like a random rare from Rivals of Ixalan. You know, what? I probably should go through my shit. I might actually have some of it. I did open quite a bit of packs of that set, so we'll see. And oh, honestly, I think I might have a foil one because I think I have a foil set of Rivals of Ixalan. I have a foil set of one of them. Sick, like sick, Bragtan. It's they gave it to us at PT twenty five. They gave us foil. Sick. Sets. It was like some part of this brag. Tannin. Well, I knew it. Go, I knew something cool was going to happen at that PT because it was the twenty five anniversary. It's like they're going to do some yeah. kind of cool swag thing. So they gave us a bunch of swag, but they just had foil redemption sets, and you just got a random one. And you got, got rivals. Uh, and of course, I got mine was uh, look. I'm not going to look at gift horse in the mouth. I got one of the worst ones. It's whatever one has uh, the phoenix in it. We're kindling phoenix because I was like, oh, this card's cool, whatever. But. Um, Brennan got Origins, which has his favorite card of all time in it, so uh, he was like pretty excited. Is his favorite card Nissa Vastwood Seer? Yeah, I guess that's a very yeah. Tannen card, or uh, not Brennan card. It's it's a Tannen card too. It, it if it's not his favorite card, it's like his second or third favorite. You know, yeah, it's in his top five. It's like Thought Scour, you know, for me, sure. for him, or whatever. But um, you know that kind you of know, thing. So, but getting back a little bit in, into Pioneer, just uh, to overview big winners from the weekend, Rakdos Arcanist. Really huge showing oh, from that deck. Uh, we'd seen a it little something you and I saw. We saw we kind of saw this coming, right? You know, we had talked. Yeah, about we we had seen a little bit of this deck in Pioneer, and it's been really good in Historic. And you know, the deck is essentially the same in Pioneer. There's you know, like a slightly better mana base. I think I'm not even sure. Like the deck is virtually the same. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. You get blights up pathway, right? Like you get the pathways for this. And I am starting to come around to the fact that these are some of the best dual lands ever printed. Yeah, the, the pathways and are I'm very, not very being good. hyperbolic. I think they are absurd, and that you're going to see people in the future, depending on how like things work, where people are going to be playing pathways above shock lands if there was a, a reason to have either one. Yeah. So really, you know, bring your graveyard hate, regardless of the format, because both modern and pioneer uh, hitting hitting some graveyard decks. And to continue on the pathways are busted plan. One of the other big winners from the weekend in Pioneer was the Jund Sacrifice or Jund Citadel deck. And that deck's mana base has essentially been completely revamped by Pathways. They're playing 12, you know, all the full 12 Pathways, more Pathways than they're playing Fastlands, more Pathways than they're playing Shocklands. So <laughs> about the strongest endorsement I think you can get. Um, but it makes a lot of sense in this deck that wants early green, but to eventually to find triple black for Citadel, though you, you get a lot of black with, with Priest. Um, but the, you know, I think one of its issues was actually the, the manos before was so painful. And this, the, you know, Pioneer is a format where people are playing burn decks regularly. They're playing auras. They're playing heroic. You know, a lot of aggressive decks going around at Pioneer. They're playing mono black aggro uh, as well. So that painful mana base is really punishing in Pioneer, more so than in a lot of other formats. And the pathways have, have really helped you, you know, bridge the gap there and not punish yourself too much against the aggressive decks. Uh, and I, re I remember the last time we saw this deck pop up, there were event there were a lot of Grafdigger's Cages in the ensuing weeks. And uh, I know Grafdigger's Cage is probably one of the weaker um 
you know, pieces of graveyard hate to play against uh, Rakdos Arcanist because it still lets them fill the graveyard, and when they find the answer, everything's unlocked immediately, uh, and they're they're playing main deck Colligan's Command, so they have main deck answers to the card anyway, and, you know, answering it at value. Uh, so I think there's going to be an interesting dynamic in the coming weeks where, you know, do you play Grafter's Cage because that's what you want to get Citadel and Company, or do you play something like Rest in Peace, Lay on the Void, so that you could shut down the Rakdos Arcanist deck, or do you try to play a mix? It's, it's one of those things, like, maybe White's not very good in Pioneer, but I was about to say, man, these decks just fold to Rest in Peace in a lot of these spots, <laughs> so we'll have to... Yeah, we'll have to see if people bring that. Uh, we're getting a little close to time, and there's a few other things we wanted to make sure that we covered. Uh, we actually have some mailbag uh, this week, Ross. Uh, we had we had mentioned in the last show that y'all, y'all, and I mean y'all listening, hadn't really been bringing it in the mailbag recently. And uh, we got three questions this week. We got two from Matty J. He says, we really have been slacking in here. All right, so the first one, I thought this was a good question since both of you and I were uh, connoisseurs of the show. It says, who are your favorite and least favorite How I Met Your Mother characters? Uh, so, favorite, Marshall. I assume among the main cast, right? Okay. Uh, and least favorite by a sure. wide margin, I mean, if, if, Lily. They, they need to be in more than one episode. Like, You know what I mean? I mean, but there's a difference between like, you know, like Ranjit is great. Everyone loves Ranjit. And Carl the bartender. Uh, okay, yeah. I, I think, yeah, yeah. Obviously, those characters are great. Of of the of the five, yeah, like who? It's yeah. n- number one, Marshall, by a pretty considerable margin, and number five, Lily, also by a considerable margin. Yeah, L- big, okay. so uh, objectively, like Barney is obviously the worst human being, and they like you know he, his character gets kind of flanderized over the course of the series and gets even more ridiculous until they sort of start his redemption arc. Um, but you know, the my problem with Lily is that she purports to be this like sweet and caring person and is actually incredibly selfish throughout the entire show uh and stubborn and still just sort of gets everything she wants which is infuriates me um so so i have some similar answers um i i think if i have to say like favorite overall and it's not because i think they're the best or anything i gotta say barney because he's the most entertaining through the show also i love watching a gay man portray that character and portray it that well through a show that's so believable you know it's just great i love seeing that they have a gay man as a womanizer um and then um i actually think lily might be the worst person on the show when it comes down to it but because of the fact that she is the second most um i I think marshall is the only one that is the has a redeeming is a redeeming character throughout the entire show he's the only one that's actively good through the whole show lily seems that way uh spoiler alert the show's been over for a while She's actually, like, been pulling strings behind the scenes the entire time and, like, fucking with all their lives. And you find that out later that, like, she's been, like, secretly setting them up and breaking them up with people the whole time without telling them and without their permission and stuff like that. Um, she also just, like, a character that leaves Marshall to, like, go to San Francisco, comes back, somehow, oh, like, yeah. just, like, nothing happens, which is, like, you know, classic sitcom. Like, they do something big at the end of a season and then completely undo it at the beginning of the next season. But in this case, it just, like... Yeah, just Lily's just a fucking monster. Season one, I think, is one of the best pure seasons of a television show ever. I think it's like it's actively just a really good movie, like from start to finish. You know what I mean? I think I think it's amazing. I think the acting's really good. Like blah blah blah. Anyway, um, the character that infuriates me the most, though, out of all of it, and I, I kind of hated where they brought her character late in, into the, the thing. It's it's not Lily. 
It's a, I literally just broke the name. Holy shit. Uh, Robin. I, don't, I wanted to say Marshall for some reason. It's Robin. And it's kind of like what you said for Lily is the fact that Robin is, I think, the most selfish character on the show. And it's like, I think that's kind of hard to debate with. You know, she makes a lot of decisions, which like she's, she's been upfront about it. She's like, this yeah. is who I am, you know, like blah, blah, blah. But she is this, the most selfish person on the show. And the thing I hate about it is she gets to live her life the way she wants, make all these selfish decisions, and then in the end realizes where she fucked up and what she should have had the whole time and what was great about it, and then still gets it. Because they kill off Ted's wife, and then Ted just is like, I'm still in love with Robin, I'll just do that, right? And it's supposed to be like this happy ending thing, and I think it just fell flat on the floor. I didn't like it, because you took this character of Robin and you like drastically change her over the last few seasons. You make her kind of like hateful and like spiteful and, and stuff. And like her and Barney just start to fucking hate each other. Right. And they become horrible people because of it. Anyone who's ever seen a relationship fall apart from the inside, the, the people are not better for it. They're worse for it. They almost always become worse people because of it. You become very jaded. You know, you start to like have a lot of baggage when it comes to a lot of things and you see her become this awful people. And then she just gets to live her life the way she wants to, getting to do all these like cool and great things. And she never she never had to wait for Ted. Ted was always just there for her, and then she eventually gets to him. You get what I'm saying? Well, like, Ted certainly it, wasn't it, there it, for her during the entire time he's with the mother. So Which is like a year. No, it's <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's like no time. And it's like fifteen Barney. years. They just don't show it to you. But, but here's the thing is Ted lives those years and goes through that, right? It just happens to her because she's got the stuff going on at Barney. There's a bunch of other stuff. And then she just like has this fall into her lap. She's got this great backup plan. Ted has to lose the thing that's most important to him uh, to get there. So I don't know. He, there's, I feel very strong. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I remember watching the, the finale and I had a very similar reaction to you when I first watched it. And then I watched it again I was, it was very and, I, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it and I ended up turning a, turning a corner on it and, and actually liking what they did. The problem was, like the it. problem was the execution was so rushed, like, because they basically did, you know, a, you know, 20 years of their lives in the finale. Let me know. Right. Yeah, let me understand. It's like they did a normal season of the show up until the last episode, and they kept the normal. It was just the same uh, formula the whole way through until it was an hour-long show. They did a a half-hour long show. Oh, you're talking about the finale. Yeah. Yeah, and then the finale is an hour-long show where they do the first 30 minutes is like a normal show, and the last 30 minutes are like, oh, and then here's the epilogue. Here's what happened. And you're like, wait, what? What? Yeah, yeah. And it happened so fast. And I remember sitting on my couch. I made sure I I was like watching it when it happened live, sitting on my couch by myself, like in, in the dark, you know, I had like the lights off so I could like watch and be engrossed in the TV. And I just wanted to cry. And well, right? this is why the second watching I think was so important because you needed to be able to, uh, like, you know, get over the shock because it was really was a shocking finale it because it, it was, it was yeah, yeah. so fast. And the, even though the, I had known since like season four, I was like, dude, there's no way she's yeah. alive. But anyway, the biggest, ahead. the biggest problem was that that incredibly rushed sequence at the end came at the heels of that ninth season where there was a problem where they weren't sure if they were going to get picked up for a ninth season. And so they wrote it in a way where they could have wrapped it after eight. So that the entire eighth, the entire second half of the eighth season is building towards a wedding. And then they got picked up for the ninth season and they did the entire ninth season on the wedding weekend. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's like two days. For an entire so it's season. this yeah, incredibly yeah. slow paced ninth season where every week it felt like nothing happened. 
and this is before streaming services like were huge. Um, and you know, how I met your mother was not on them because it was still on broadcast TV. So I was literally watching the episodes week by week. So it was, so for, you know, from October to May, seven months, once a week, you got this incredibly small tidbit. It was, you know, half an hour and nothing happened for months at a time. And then in the finale, it felt like seven seasons happened in 30 minutes. So you really like it. You needed to sit down and watch it again. And here's the thing that I ended up really liking about it. You've got to divorce yourself from the idea that, and it's hard because they they paint it this way. And it's because that's what that's what Ted. It's Ted's goal. They're giving you the perspective through where his goal was always to find the mother of his kids, find you know the woman of his dreams, fall in love, get married, and have that idyllic suburban family life. But the no one else like the other people in the show don't have that same dream you know marshall really really does uh, but they find it early so they're foils in that way but robin wants to be the career woman and barney wants to be the single bachelor still having fun in his 40s right and so you have all these people who want very different things out of life and the the important thing to that the show always stresses is that there's a there's a variance there's there's randomness when it comes to life there are things elements that you can't control there's a ton of episodes dealing with this right from you know the lucky penny episode in season two to the um there one of my favorite episodes in season three where he runs into stella randomly at towards the end of season three and that's when he gets offered or end of season four and that's when he gets offered the the job as the professor and it's that episode where he's telling his kids like you know why did i turn right when i walked out the door that day and it was to you know because to go to a different bagel place because the other one got you know shut down from food poisoning uh we don't have to go through the entire thing but it's a it's a great episode i love it um and uh you know, and they're, ultimately, they're not arguing that you don't have any agency over your life. You don't have free will, but they're arguing that you don't have a hundred percent control. You can't completely plan everything, and that was that was one of the problems that Ted had. His he had a conflict with the world where he was trying to plan things, and, and he didn't allow things to come to them, uh, and he didn't realize that he couldn't force things to happen when he wanted to happen when he wanted them to happen. What he needed to do was to create the conditions for that thing to happen. He, need, he talks about this in the St. Patrick's Day episode. He needed to become the woman he needed to be in order to meet the mother. And he says that, like, you know, if I had met her, you know, years earlier, it would have probably ended poorly because I wasn't the person I needed to be in order for that relationship to work. And so, yeah, those are those are all it, really good points. So it yeah. it create it, it really creates this um this I notion of relationships as being dependent on and people as well as being dependent on the time in which they're in. So there are there are times at which two people may be compatible and other times in which they aren't. And that's the problem with with Ted and Robin's relationship. You know, they they have they they're in love with each other in season 2, but they eventually break up because they're young and they want completely different things out of life and they realize their lives are not going to be compatible. One of them is going to have to sacrifice for the other and that's going to create resentment and the relationship isn't going to work. So they decide to break it while things are still amicable. Obviously, that like the feelings never go away, and that's why you see those things recur time and time again. You know, uh, in season five, in season seven, in season eight, in season nine, uh, they they recur every single time. They don't recur obviously in season three and season six because Ted is in long term relationships in those seasons. By the way, one with Zoe and one one with um um what's Sarah Chalk's character Stella. God, I can't think of Stella. I can't, yeah, Stella's Stella, in maybe. Yeah. So um. Yeah. 
So that's that's a key you have to realize is that's the idea, notion of relationships that the entire show is trying to build. But you also have to try to divorce yourself from just sitting there rooting for Ted, and because then you get into the mindset that the goal of the show is to find a long term stable relationship. That's Ted's goal, Mm -hmm. right? It's not Robin's goal, and she's not explicitly says that. Yeah, explicitly says that in multiple. And she and it's so it's uh, to me I, I would disagree with you because it's not selfish of Robin to want the things that she wants out of life. And she goes. Oh, and, I, I didn't. I didn't mean it that way. I didn't say it that way. Um, and she, so she goes, you know, her way and gets the things that she wants out of life. She has that the career. She becomes famous, right? And you know, Ted goes and gets the things he wants out of life. And I, I, the the immediate reaction, and it's because you never really have time to emotionally react to the mother's death before you get to that final scene where he reunites with Robin. Uh, and you realize that the the show was actually you know him trying to get over the mother and and ask his kids for permission to move on and start seeing Robin again, um, and it, it, you know it feels like a betrayal because it, it all happens so quickly in real time on the screen. But w- but when you watch it over again and you think about it, that's happening you know years down the road, right? So after he's grieved properly, and now he and Robin are in completely different places in their lives. He's had that you know family life. His kids are probably in their you know mid to late teens, right? And Robin is established. Yeah, they're like late teenagers. Yeah, she's established yeah. in her career. She's probably not traveling nearly as much as she was earlier because she has more control over what she wants to do. She tells them that she's like got the apartment over Central Park West, right? So she's back in New York, based there. Um, so the logistics and everything have lined up again. And now they're free to pursue a relationship where their lives are actually going to be compatible. And so I, I actually found that r- really, um, you know, touching in the way that it port- it, it gets away from common tropes of love as being this thing of destiny where two people love each other and nothing can keep them apart and they're going to be together forever no matter what the obstacles are. And it really creates a much more realistic portrait of relationships, especially in modern relationships, where the details are important. Right. You know, and, you know, sacrificing somebody for the the to in order to maintain a relationship is, you know, a real cost. That's one of the things that you kind of learn through the course of Lily and Marshall's relationship, where at multiple points, you know, Lily feels like she's the one sacrificing all the time for, for Marshall. Maybe I'm actually being unfair to Lily now that I'm thinking about it. You know, at all the times where she's trying to bail on that relationship, yeah. that she, I mean, she does it in a really bad way, I think. Uh, and I think she you know, does, you know, acts poorly. The execution is definitely poor. Yeah, yeah. the execution is poor, but her, her feelings are valid. You know, she had all these dreams that she wanted to pursue, and she sort of gave them all up in order to maintain the relationship with Marshall. And Marshall, you know, gets to pursue his dream from the get-go. He's, he's, he wants to be an environmental lawyer uh, and, and uh, you know, becomes one and eventually becomes the judge and whatever. Uh, you know, he, uh, and, you know, he, his dreams change, obviously, over the course of the show, too. Um, but... You know that th- I thought it, it. I ended up coming to the conclusion that the that com that prevailing narrative was overly simplistic, because it bought into uh, you know false notions of love and relationships that the show was explicitly trying to move away from and explore more realistic and nuanced uh, and uh, you know um, ideas of those things. And I think it did a really good job of it except that season nine was a complete shit show and a disaster. And the rushed finale yeah. was, you know, a, was the, the problems with it were compounded because it came on the heels of that ninth season. I think if they literally did like t- take that half hour of that second part of the finale, expand it to 20 episodes and do that as season nine, I think it would have been awesome. 
Like if you had a if you had a six episode yeah. arc to you know gr- to watch the mother you know get sick and then deal with the illness and eventually she dies. There's a funeral and you know Krista Milioti is involved in the entire ninth season. Everything is great. It wouldn't make it doesn't. Unfortunately, that doesn't make sense with the premise of the show, <laughs> right? It, like he wouldn't t- that wouldn't be part of the story. So they painted themselves into yeah, it. Course, they just yeah. sort of painted themselves into a bit of a corner, and ultimately they were true to what the you know heart of the show was, but. The season nine was just such a shit show. I cannot emphasize that enough. Though there is one up ep- the episode in season nine, How Your Mother Met Me, where they like trail her throughout the entire course of the history of the show is literally one of the best episodes of the series. And it's in the t- saving grace of the entirety of season nine. But the, the, um, I've now ranted about this for about 20 minutes and I'm not sorry at all because yeah, I have to cut you off. incredibly strong yeah. feelings about this. And I hope everyone enjoyed that. Two or three little things uh, about that. How Your Mother Met Me episode. I have long been stand, uh, I have long been like quoted and said this in a, a lot about I, I love television right I love really good deep TV shows one of the biggest things that draws me on TV shows besides the stuff that makes me watch a series right you're like I care about these characters the writing is good the progression is good is one of the defining characters for me for that is there's generally one or a few episodes of a show where you can be like that is a perfect episode you know you and I joked about this and you got it right as like you know there's one in house. You know, it's the three stories. Yeah, in, in season one, when he, when he's in, in front of the one, classroom. Stories, yeah. yeah, that's that episode is. Yeah, there's there's a few other, there's a few other episodes of that show that are unbelievably good, and there's a few arcs that are unbelievably good. Like when he's losing his mind because he's coming off of the drugs and stuff. I thought it was unreal good. Right? There's little things like that. Like there, um, I recently binge watched Lucifer, and there's an episode of that show that is absolutely perfect. Or whatever. Right. Almost every one of these episodes, I'm like, this is absolutely perfect. It's got such a high rating they're almost like a sore thumb. They stick out because the episode doesn't follow the formulaic uh, that the other episodes do. And it's generally a little different in some way. So it's noticeable, right? And that yeah. episode, while it does follow a similar formula, it's so different that it stands out. And then the episode itself is strong. So it stands out even more. Um, if I had to have a favorite character on the show that wasn't one of the people, uh, Kristen might be my favorite episode. She is a fucking ray of sunshine and everything that she's in. She's an amazing actress. I love her and everything she's in. I wish we could have gotten more of her yeah. in the show. If you haven't watched Palm Springs, Springs which is, more. is Palm Springs on Netflix or Hulu? I think it's Hulu. Amazing. The, the movie. Uh, it's on Hulu yeah. or Prime. She did. It's not on Prime because yeah. I don't have that. But she, uh, it's her and okay, it's, Hulu, it's her and Andy Samberg in a Groundhog Day-esque uh movie it is mm-hmm. awesome amazing yeah and so um he, 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 yeah and so you heard us say all this all our problems with the show whatever blah blah i'll tell you this if we didn't love the show to the degree that we did and we didn't think it was as good as it did we would have had we would have not had this strong or visceral of a reaction to it if you have not watched the show we kind of gave away some stuff Watch yeah. every goddamn episode of it. It is utterly amazing. It is really well done. And there are so many inside jokes to it that you don't want to miss an episode because it's really rewarding to watch season like five or season six or season seven when you've watched season ones, two, three, and four. Yeah. I I talked about I talked about you know season nine being uh, a grind because I was watching it week by week. But I did that for the entirety of this show. 
I am telling you, I literally Same. watched the series premiere on television when I was a senior in high school in 2005. I was like, this show seems kind of interesting. Friends had been off the air for was, a year, just kind of looked like a Friends reboot. But, you know, yeah. I knew I knew Neil Patrick Harris was a good actor. And, um, you know, you knew Allison Hannigan was a good actor. You hadn't really heard of the other three. Jason Siegel was like... Yeah, this, this blew up the other he three. He was one of the yes, unknown yeah. Judd Apatow guys. And this was, you know, his, his yeah. big breakout. Uh, Kobe Smulders yeah, definitely Freaks hers. and Geeks didn't do... Freaks and Geeks didn't do for him what it needed to do for his career, yeah. and this really did. And if you, yeah. if you haven't seen Freaks and Geeks, that got added to Hulu recently. It is also unbelievably good. It's only 19 episodes. Okay. I'm trying to finish off whatever else. Uh, Manny J had a second one, but we're going to skip it because it says, uh, feel free to rant about anything on him. We've done that quite a bit. Uh, Brent, our lovely editor, has a really good question. Anthony Fauci said regular people should get the vaccine by the end of summer at the latest. So that means, like, I probably won't have it until the end of summer, but anyway. But it might be as early as May. If that goal is met, what are the odds that CFB, so Channel Fireball, SCG, uh, Star City Games, would do an event only for the people who are fully vaccinated, both uh, both doses from current COVID? I love the idea. I don't think this is a thing they're going to do. I don't think they're going to be like, you're only vaccinated because like the way to prove it and all this stuff. It's, oh man, I, it sounds like a logistical nightmare and not worth it. Yeah, I don't think that's a, a financially feasible project. Granted, this is I think it's a good idea. far from my area of expertise. But the idea, like, you know, you know, maybe if they, like, did some research, they could find areas that did particularly well with the vaccine rollouts and try to have, you know, something there. But I think the—I don't think Magic tournaments are returning until we have reached a huge portion of vaccination levels to where large indoor gatherings are quite safe, even with some portion of unvaccinated people. So you're talking that like eighty, I think it's eighty percent the mark people say for for herd immunity. You know, I don't think we're seeing major paper magic tournaments return until that kind of level. I think you're going to see local tournaments return before then, and maybe you know certain local stores will say like we're not going to let you in, uh, you know, unless you bring in you know a sheet of paper or whatever from your doctor that says you got you know vaccinated. Uh, or something maybe local stores will do that i don't really know but as far as the the major tournament vendors i just don't see it being profitable for them to both run an event that is going to be noticeably smaller because they're only allowing a certain fraction of the populace to to attend and participate and require more money to overcome the additional logistical burden no 100 agree i was shaking my head not that i disagree we're also shaking my head or anything um i actually just saw it frozen and i was a little worried <laughs> Yeah, I I was uh, I was yeah I was I hope your stuff got through in the recording because it was lagging over here too. Um, I'm just shaking my head because like my local LGS had like a 35 person moderate event like last weekend and I was just baffled at the, like the fact that, that that is going on right now. People are still dying like every day. I mean like we're trending downward in our state, but there's reasons that we're trending downward. That doesn't mean you just get to start acting the way you did before. Yeah, or whatever, so I don't know, it's just it's just incredibly it. selfish to me. Like you can disagree with me, it just seems incredibly selfish. To uh, me. You can't disagree um, with Tannen there. He's right, and if you're attending paper tournaments right now, you're a piece of shit, and you should stop listening to this podcast. <laughs> I'm 100 yeah, percent serious. Okay, cool. I don't want you listening. Yeah, to it. yeah. All right, <laughs> you're a little more forward than I am, but sure. Um, I will say I, I, I wanted to get some over under done, but I don't think we really have time. We're at two hours and 15 minutes already. So I think we're just going to ha- go ahead and do the outro. Make sure that you check out our wonderful sponsor at Barrister and man. That's man with two ends. Go ahead. They got, they got their overrated underrated on how I met your mother underrated yeah. that, that show. Like it got, re- yeah, under- it got really popular and then everybody kind of turned on it in like season four or five it actually ended up getting, it had a couple, 
I mean, it, it, it had a couple of seasons it, that were a little subpar. It stagnates. And then it came back. It, it definitely it definitely stagnates. I think, like, you know, seasons five through eight are not as good as seasons one through four. And it's a show that probably shouldn't have gone on as long as it did. I think it would have been better to wrap yeah, that show in, like, six seasons as opposed to nine. Um, but, it, I mean, it was it was still good. Except for season nine. That was a shit show. But what else is still good is Barrister and Man. And make sure you check out their products at their website, barristerandman.com. Lots of really cool stuff going on over there. Uh, <laughs> Ross and I definitely use their products. Uh, I use I use mine, I don't not every day, but like multiple times a week. Uh, I know I've been saying this, but still, it's the best shave of my life, a lot of their products. Uh, I'm going to be taking a shower after the show once I get my workout in. And that soap gets me cleaner than I've ever been cleaned before in my life. And I know that I'm not... Get, I love that it's simple ingredients and it's made by somebody that I know. You know what I mean? Like it's it's just a good product made by a good person, and it's not it's not in a bottle with words on it and numbers that I don't know what they mean. I, I don't think people who like people are even our age, maybe probably probably even a little older. You know, probably everybody who's like forty and under is not used to the way things used to be manufactured. Like our our product, just our all, products across the board are made so cheaply and with such low quality in, ingredients that they all just kind of suck. Our food supply sucks. You know, any, everything we buy just sucks. And, you know, it's not really noticeable until you have products that are actually made well and made with quality ingredients. And that's what this is. This is, you know. Yeah. And that's it's something I've been doing in my life. I think, I think we talked about this on a show once before. I know you and I have had this conversation where a few years ago, I just decided I was like, Less stuff, better quality. Yes. You know, less quantity, better quality for me. And and that's what Barrister and Man is. It's just better quality for me. And the results have just been better. And I've started to demand a higher quality from the products that I use. You know, I'm, I've, I think you've heard me talk about this on the show before. I think you've heard me say the literal words over the last, you know, couple of years. I've been paying way more attention to what I put into my body and what I put onto my body. You know, like I've been trying to take better care of myself. Like, I want to make sure that... Because, like, here's the thing. The average age for, for men is, what, like, 76 or something like that? For I make sure that I can, average like, life expectancy? For yeah. men, it's, like, 73. So, okay. I knew it was, like, low to mid-70s, right? And, like, I want to make sure that I can, like, walk and move around. and be, Like, I'm not uncomfortable, you know, when it gets uh, that age. And, like, I want to be able to, like, you know, when I look at my, my wife's dad, you know, he's in his 70s. And he's, like, up moving around and stuff all the time, you know, because he took care of himself through his life. You know, I'm not saying other people haven't who are, you know, it's I'm not saying it's your fault at that age. You know, obviously, like, you know, things happen, you know, and stuff like that. But I want to make sure that I give myself the best chance to live life to its fullest for the entire time that I'm alive, you know, and it goes a long way. And that got kind of uh, morbid there for a second. Sorry about that. But I just want to make sure that I put better products in and on my body. And that's what I'm doing with, you know, Barrister and Man stuff. So make sure you check it out. You can use the code MTG Rants for 15% off on their website. Make sure... You, uh, and here's the thing. I can't even tell you all the products they have on there. They're always adding new and cool stuff, seasonal things. Make sure you check it out. Lots of cool scents and stuff like that. And by scents, I mean smells for some of you people. So make sure that you're, uh, you're doing your body good, you know, doing a little extra work there. So I, I just Googled life expectancy for men in the U S uh, actually you, you were closer. It's, it is, it's about 76 apparently now. Um, it's like 75 and a half, right? Or something says like that. 76 years and two months. That was in 2019. Okay. Um, but I was startled because one of the suggested searches from Google is what is the best age to die at? Which is just, 
who predicted Ooh. text on Google. Yeah, like the stuff that like those things are always great. Like those those are always a lot I'm just, of fun. I'm just shuddering at the thought. Like, who is Googling that? Get yourself some help. Ross, if someone if someone were to Google you because they wanted to know where here they could hear more of your rants, where would that be? <laughs> oh, you can skip the Google because I'm gonna tell you. Uh, best place is my uh, Twitter account. I'm at Ross Hunneds. That's R O S S H U N N E D S. Uh, best place for you know to find out about all of my content as well as you know ask me questions about whatever. I do try to get back to people as much as possible. Uh, next is my written content on StarCityGames.com. My articles tend to go up on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. If there's any change, I'll usually tell people on Twitter. This week's was right on schedule. My article this week, as I alluded to earlier in the show, was all about different cyber cards that you need to be looking uh, you know, at more heavily now that modern is much different post-bans. Uh, so if you're you know, struggling to craft your modern sideboard in a very wide open metagame, uh, that is going to be a good article for you. Next is the uh, non-written content, by which I mean Versus Live, the web show I co-host twice a week with Corey Baumeister. Uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we are on the Star City Games Twitch channel from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern time, playing whatever is relevant for competitive magic and having a great time. We take questions live from the audience. I am telling you now... Uh, Today's show, we are recording this on a Tuesday evening, so we did a Versus Live show uh, earlier. The third game, and really the entire third match, but especially the third game, is potentially, I I really think it's the most ridiculous game and match of Magic I have played ever on Versus Live, and I've now been doing it for five years. I can attest that it was actually awesome, because for the first time in a while, I watched almost the entire episode today. Also, if you're a fan of Burns... (laughs) <laughs> or people being rushed to the burn unit, I get absolutely destroyed wow. on the show today. Yeah. Yeah, I got absolutely destroyed. Um, that was I during the second segment, right? So match two? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was the second the second match. Yeah. Yeah, it was the second match because uh, Corey hadn't won a game yet because uh, yeah, the second match. So. Spoilers. Uh, I lost it, and so did chat. Yeah. So make sure you uh, yeah make sure you go check that out, even if just for that, but then stick around for the good games in the third room. Yes, a, uh, a great episode today, and you can watch the VODs if you can't watch them live. They go on the Star City Games YouTube channel the following day at 5 p.m. Eastern. So uh, by the time this is uploaded and you're listening to this, those VODs should be up. Um, just you know, look by uh, upload date, and that should let you know. Um, it was incredible. Uh, last but not least is my Twitch stream. I have not streamed in a while. I promise you it's coming back soon. Follow me on Twitter. You'll find out exactly when. I am... Um, Ross underscore Miriam on Twitch. So you can go follow me now. If you want to sub to me, even though I'm not doing anything, I appreciate it, but certainly don't expect it. Uh, and I appreciate any and all support on any and all of those platforms. Tannen, where can people find your inferior opinions about most things? <laughs> sure. Uh, well, you can find me on Twitch under the Tannen Grace. Uh, I'm sorry, that's not Twitch. You can find me on Twitter at the Tan and Grace under Twitch. I'm just Tan and Grace. I've actually been uh, streaming quite a bit recently. I streamed a ton of limited over the last few weeks getting ready for the open. I've also been sprinkling in a little bit of standard. I found a deck that I like like playing and I've been trying out some of the other ones so I can get some uh, some better opinions. I might be trying out Historic sometime soon because I do like the Arcanist decks like quite a bit. Those are like kind of my style. So I might be playing some more Constructed as well on my stream. So make sure you check that out. Um, and speaking of the sub thing, I've actually been getting quite a bit of subs and I finally got around to, uh, like messing with my stream a little bit. I need to update some more stuff. I've got some stuff in there from years ago where I streamed, but I finally changed the sub badge on my channel. Did I tell you about this? No. 
So, uh, you know, like you can change the little, you know, you can change the little, the, okay. So when you have a, a when someone subs to you in, uh, in Twitch, they get like a little thing in front of you. Usually it's like the default, it's like they have a star or something. In front yeah. Of you. But you can, like you can change this some other or? image based on your channel and they get cool stuff. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So in my channel, you're subbed to me. You now get the word the in front of your name. That's awesome. So the sub badge is the word the. So now you're like the Ross Miriam or, you know, the whoever, whoever. That so is really not awesome. Not the Tan and Grace. Yeah, I thought it was like fucking genius. And I don't, I don't remember if it was like my idea or I think it was like me and someone else, someone else and I were talking about it. And it just like, it just kind of was like a collaborative. It just came up and I was like, it's just so perfect. I had to do it. Yeah, it's, so, it's incredible. Uh, again, it's just Tan and Grace on Twitch. Uh, make sure you check it out. Uh, I stream almost every day right now and I'm going to be pretty bored for like the next few weeks. So make sure you check it out. And, uh, I stream at some pretty random times. I don't have an actual schedule yet, but it's almost every day. So make sure you check it out. Also the VODs are up all the time. So you check out the VODs too. So, and, uh, the show itself has a Twitter. It's just MTG rants. We also have a Patreon. We have a discord. Check it out. I'm going to go ahead and just, you know, end the show here. We're going way too over in this and I feel bad for Brent. So, uh, make sure you check all that out. So anyway, we'll see y'all next week. Hold on, what the hell are you talking about?